Today on the Story Geeks podcast, we're kicking off our Versus series with screenwriting versus fiction writing versus comic book writing, breaking down the essential elements of each medium. But before we get to that, um, we've got a fascinating new sponsor, a participatory arts podcast. At the end of this episode, I will play a trailer and you should listen because it's a fascinating concept. It's called Signal, S-Y-G-N-Y-L, and it just launched. So if you find this concept interesting, go check it out. Signal subtly invites listeners into a hidden world existing all around you. And here's where it gets really interesting. In each episode, a soothing voice will dare you to complete small collaborative acts in the real world. Trippy, right? And super interesting. I I know you'll love the trailer when I play it. Through magical realism, the signal becomes a new vessel for ancient wisdom and a medicine for the troubles currently ailing our world. Sounds intriguing, I think at least. Will you choose to follow the instructions within? Visit signal.com, S-Y-G-N-Y-L.com to check it out. And like I said, I'll play a clip for you at the end of this show. I'm Jay Shear, co-author of Death of a Bounty Hunter, which is now a semi-finalist in ScreenCraft's cinematic book competition. And you know my co-host, I'm going to add him to the stream here. Caleb, how you doing, Caleb? Uh, I am doing good. I'm tired. It's uh, <laughs> uh, it's related to writing, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story. But I, I had a story due at midnight Sunday Pacific time, but that's 8 a.m. Monday here in London. And uh, I had a very full week. I did not get to start on the story as soon as I wanted to because I had a series pitch and a comic script to, to write before I could get to it. And wow. so I was up most of the night. I slept for two hours and <laughs> uh, turned the story in with eight minutes to spare this morning. And so I'm my whole day has just sort of been a combination of uh, proud and satisfied. I'm done. I like the story. Uh, but then also just incredibly exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. It sounds totally exhausting. Yeah. Um, I got enough sleep. However, uh, I've been rushing around trying to finish up things this morning before we jump on this show. So I'm also tired, but we're going to jump into it because we are going to talk today about something you're very familiar with because you have done all three of these things. I have also done all three of these things, although I will say that my uh, I've only written one comic book. So um, and it was and we've never released it. (laughs) So there's uh, I don't have as much depth of knowledge in that side of the field as you do. Um, but you you have written comic books, you've written fiction, and you are the screenwriter, uh, co-writer of the feature film, The Mongolian Connection. So today it should be interesting because Caleb and I play with all of these mediums, screenwriting, fiction writing, and comic book writing. So it should be kind of fun to to explore all this. So Caleb, I'm going to let you be the the prompt for us as we discuss this these topics. Um, where do you want to start? Uh, I say let's start with just defining a few basics. What would you say the difference is between a medium and a genre? Or what would you say a medium is and a genre is? Ooh, that's a good question. So um, I don't even – genre is one of those words that is so convoluted at this point that – you can go to go go to a bunch of different writing podcasts, and you might find uh, a different definition of the word genre in each one of them. Uh, medium for me is a lot easier to define because medium for me just means um, the uh, the environment in which the 
audience finds themselves as they are engaging with your story, right? So um, is it going to be on a screen? Is it going to be on a small screen where you're reading prose? Is it going to be um, in a actual comic book or an electronic comic book? Like, so the medium to me is the way that the user, the audience accesses your creative work, essentially. Now, we're not going to get this granular, but you could even go like, well, what's the difference between the way that they engage fiction on an iPad versus the way they engage fiction, you know, in the actual printed book? We, we're not going to get that deep, most likely. But those are the kinds of differences because I think that your brain operates differently with each, with each kind of different medium. And largely, you can group them into screens and watching film play out versus um, comic books and how those function versus fiction and how those function. And then genre, I would say, as I define the term, it just speaks to audience expectations of what will be included in the story is basically a genre. And, then, and however you define that, however you work that out um and you can blend genres you know death of a bounty hunter blends like three or four different genres so um so that can get kind of uh interesting and confusing as well but what about you how do you define them uh i i think you're i think you've pretty much got it i would say a medium is the way a story is being told mm. and by that i mean i'm really referring to sensory inputs mm. because film comics prose stage play, poetry, they all work with different sensory inputs. Um, mm. It's a different set of sensory inputs. You're receiving some from movies that you're not going to receive from books and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and a genre is the type of story being told uh, in the most simple form. And mediums can be clearly defined. You're yeah. either watching a movie or you're not. Um, <laughs> or you're watching a movie and reading a book these days. Yes. <laughs> this is how people, do, people operate. <laughs> but genres can't really be defined like that. Genres are neighborhoods. You know, they, these they kind of all live next to each other, but whether or not a story is a is gothic, gothic romance, gothic horror, or gothic fantasy, every single person's going to have a slightly different take on that. You know it's in that neighborhood, but the, <laughs> the you know the exact genre, it's that there is there's subject sub, subjectivity to it there. Yeah, uh, I, like, I like the way you said that. That's like a perfect way of describing it. <laughs> uh, but, but I would say that people confuse these often mm. and don't realize that they are. They mm. People confuse genres for mediums. I hear that all the time. People say, oh, I, I'm not, I don't like comic books. And what they mean is I don't like superheroes or right. I don't like action. I don't like fantasy. I don't like science fiction because comic books is a medium. That's like saying... I don't like movies or I don't like books. And and some people would say that. I don't like movies, I don't like books. But most people they're not saying that. They they right. do like stories. They just have confused a genre with a medium and you know that's the main place where I see confusion happening. Yeah, actually I think that's really good that you pointed that out because I see that happen all the time as well. And it mainly happens it mainly happens with um comic books. I do think that with because people will like literally say what you just said and they and they mean I don't like superhero um the superhero genre but I do think that they're um the people who say I don't read books almost entirely mean I do not participate in that medium <laughs> right like like they're just not book readers um they might read magazine articles or they might do something different or listen to podcasts but like they literally mean I don't read books which is sort of interesting because 
if you are a book reader and you know you're a book reader, you probably read a lot of books. There's a few people, maybe people like me, who read a few books a year, but a lot of people, like they're very invested in that particular medium. They read a lot of books. Go on the Goodreads and you'll look at these people that read just boom, boom, boom. They're reading all these kinds of books. I wish I could be more like that. I don't, I don't, uh, I fall asleep a lot of times when I read books, um, books that I love. So it's, it's interesting, even though I write predominantly in that methodology. So it's, it's a fascinating thing, the way that you have to think about when it comes to mediums, how are people going to be experiencing what you're doing? And what are you trying to bring to the table with that, with that medium is a really fascinating concept. Yes. And I, uh, you know, I'll say as someone who works in different mediums, and, and you're talking about reading books and writing books. I can't, I usually can't consume the thing I'm writing. So if I'm uh, writing a comic, I don't want to read comics. It feels like work. <laughs> if I'm, if I'm writing a short story, I don't want to read a novel. It feels like work. Or if I'm writing a movie, I don't want to watch movies because it feels like work. I want to read comics or something like yeah. that. So, but you know, but that's, that's a personal thing, but you may experience that as a writer. So I'll throw that out there for people. I and sometimes I will... experience that too, by the way. I sometimes feel <laughs> the same exact way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and I will say, well, before we move on that, I, there, I think there's also something known as, a. there are also meta genres or mm. what I call genre phages. Um, and superhero is a great example of that. Superheroes are a genre phage, meaning they ate all the other genres <laughs> at, at, at one point, at one point comics was, was Westerns and romance and kids and action and crime and fantasy and science fiction. And then this genre superhero came along and it was, it's able to contain all of them. And so it just ate them. And that's why superheroes took over the entire comic book industry because it could, it could tell the stories that all those mediums could tell and others, Yeah, you know? Um, And then when um, special effects technology got to the right point, it started eating movies. And it is yeah. now it is now eating films, you know, like more <laughs> and more films are what you would call superhero films. And, uh, you know, it's just really interesting to watch that. It's just it, it is a genre phage meta genre type of thing. It's the only one I know that I think is that powerful, but yeah. uh, that can literally eat any kind of story and digest it and process it and release it, you know. Yeah. Well, and it goes back almost to the beginning of storytelling because back in the day, we didn't call them superheroes. We would just call them gods, right? And the, and the storytelling was all about the gods, but the gods dealt in all the genres, right? Like the gods were were getting into romances and they were they were getting into action and they were getting into all of the other genres that you could lay out in front of them. Um, so superheroes have sort of, have just sort of taken over the the mythical, if you will, uh, genre itself. So yeah, it's really fascinating. You're right. It has eaten all the other genres. I like the way you said that. <laughs> oh, and one more thing that has occurred to me as we talk mm. about genres is the word genre has two different meanings depending who in the storytelling industry is using it. Oh, really? So for you as a writer, genre means subject matter and feeling. Uh, yeah. For anyone on the publishing, marketing, production side of things, genre means audience. Who are we going to direct this at? Who are we selling this at? We are going for the people who like these types of things. Mm -hmm. Um, Even, you know, so there's a lot of overlap between those, but there is a definite difference. And so you have to know, depending on who you're talking to, that they're going to be using genre in a different way. 
That's a great point. That's a really, really good point. In fact, because um, we serve as the producers of our own um, books at this point and, and our short films, um, we do think of in that way, right? Like we think of, we want to write, we, but we do it, the way we do it is uh, usually a writer will approach um, a producer or a publisher they know publishes the genre that they have written. However, that's getting more and more confusing because there's more and more genre mashups and genre blends than we've ever seen before. So what happens is the writer just gets inspired to do something. And then a lot of times, I think, too, writers will use genre as a means to overcome a problem in the storytelling in, with storytelling aspects. So, for example, you might say, well, uh, there is no chance that this would have happened historically in this setting. So I'll just do uh, a fantasy setting instead. And then I don't have to deal with this specific city and reference this specific city, right? It's like it's like the difference between, um, I was just watching a documentary on Marvel. And it's like the difference between what DC does versus what Marvel does. DC goes, well, there's going to be a Gotham. And in Gotham's a fake place. It's sort of Chicago-ish or it's sort of New York-ish. But then we have Metropolis. That's sort of New York-ish. But then Marvel just said, no, we're just going to go straight to the cities. And it's not going to be as fantastical in that regard in terms of its environment. Um uh, so it's, it's, I think it's interesting how genre can help writers solve writing problems. In fact, we could do a whole episode on genre, <laughs> but, um, then they pass that along to the publisher and the publisher goes, well, who's going to read this based on who, what else they read. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, to, to your point, that's an example. Yeah. And genre is taxonomic, meaning it comes after it's, mm. it's a categorization that comes after. Even on the creative side of things, people come along and say, well, this group of writers that was working in the 70s, they were in this genre that we're now going to call new sci-fi. You yeah. know, like, <laughs> right. but it, that's an after the fact thing. At the time, they were just writing science, you know, to them, they're just writing science fiction stories, but they were doing something new. Mm -hmm. And it was creating a new genre as people would later define it. And, and you see that. So it's taxonomic. It comes afterwards. Yeah. Uh, on the creative side of things, that doesn't mean you can't treat it as a target. Right. I am trying to write a X type of story. Right. However, you will probably not know what genre you've written. You will you will shoot for something, <laughs> but you, you really need someone else to come along and read it. And and you know, like uh, I know someone who tried to write a horror novel, and everyone who read it was like, "This is a romance. Go back, try the horror version of this again, but go sell this as a romance." Yes. You know, like you don't always. <laughs> the thing you can aim for something, but that's not always what comes out, and yeah. that's okay, um, because again, the taxonomy of genre comes afterwards. So you can shoot for something, write the best story you can, yeah, uh, but then get others to help you decide <laughs> what it actually is, because you won't. You'll be a pretty poor judge of that, actually. Yeah, it's a great, really good point. And also, um, it should be noted that I don't know if this happened to you, but I have started a story, finished or gotten most of the way through a story, then decided this would work much better in a completely different genre, put it aside, started writing the story all over again with completely different elements in it in the same genre I was trying to write to to begin with, and then gone back to the other story and written it from scratch with a completely different genre. So it's I think it's it's instructive to as you as you go about the process. In fact, the comic book, the comic book that we that Nathan and I did. Nathan's my um, co-writer on a lot of stuff. He was the artist on this comic book. We did this comic book, which is like a 1930s gangster era comic book that was superhero in nature and supernatural in nature. 
and I took one of the giant elements about the main character and dumped it into my prose novel because I was like, I, this works for this other genre with this other thing. And the comic book will never see the light of day. So basically I just took it, plopped it over there. A totally different genre, but the same inciting incident works in both cases. And I thought it fit better into the novel, which had more legs than the comic book did. So you can actually just take and and you know, this is the process of now what I'm describing is very mechanic. You and I talk about this all the time. You're mm -hmm. a muse on the mechanic. What I'm talking about is very <laughs> mechanical. Like, will this work? No, I'll put it over here instead. Um, but yeah, you shouldn't be confined to one to one genre, especially as you start talking about the mediums. Some things, some genres work better in some mediums than other genres. Like there's way more comic book and movie superhero properties than there are uh, novel superhero properties, right? Mm -hmm. So some some genres work better in some mediums and some genres don't. So that's that's a thing too. Yep, it's a whole thing. You, you know, you said it as an offhanded comment, but we should come back one day and we should do an episode about things you've written that you know are never going to see the light of day. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that's a, that's a whole side of the writing life. Oh, it totally um, is. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so what mediums have you personally worked on? You've kind of, you, you know, you've, I think you've mentioned most of them, but let's just to be clear. Yeah, so, um, uh, well, one thing that's really interesting is just as you can blend genres, you can actually blend mediums. Now, that's a lot of detail that we could get into, but, um, but I think that because I have written uh, screenplays, mostly short films is mostly what I've concentrated on, and I've, finished probably probably eight or nine short films um and produced i might actually might maybe i've done a dozen by now actually and i've produced three of those um other three of three other ones that were never produced one like top 10 finishes in different contests um so i'm, I'm familiar with the film genre but mostly from more so from a short film i've, I've done features but mostly from a short film kind of uh, experience. And then uh, this book here behind me on the wall, you can, if you're watching the video, you can see it if you can, otherwise in my t-shirt actually, I'm wearing it too, is the Time Slingers. And that was, that was a little bit of a genre or a medium mashup itself. But then of course we just published our novel, but our novel, like our novel, we wrote it and we wrote it to be in a full cast audio book. And we wrote it with like the visuals in mind. So in ScreenCraft's cinematic book competition, it was like a perfect example of something to submit to that because we had actually thought about it from the context of how is this, how would this be visually too, right? So, so I'm I can be easily accused of. In fact, my wife says you're not a very literary novel writer, and that is very true. Like if you're looking for classic literature, then you reading my books are going to be a little bit frustrated because you're like, well, he's he's doing things that are not classically literature. So I think you can. So I have experience with all of those, but I'm always trying to sort of bring my experience from one and put it in the other. So comics, uh, just one comic, barely, comic? And barely any, we'll say barely comics. any comics. Yeah, prose, audio, and film, sort of a, a yes, the big four. Yep, 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 yep. I, for me, comics. I mean, if you if you Google me, that's most of what you're going to find yep. quickly. That's the most of my career writing comics. Uh, but there is film. There is film. You can watch one of them. You know, yeah, there's a yeah, lot of yeah, films. Yeah. A lot of films get written that no one will ever see. That's um, right. Even see the script of, and I've got a couple of those. But <laughs> you can watch Mongolian Connection, uh, and then prose, but only in short stories. Uh, I have. I haven't even gone to 
what some people would define as novelette or novella, definitely mm. not novel. Mm. Mm. Uh, it's all been short stories so far. And then I've also published some poetry and nonfiction, mm. uh, which we're not going to talk about a ton here. That's not really the, the core audience, we'll, we'll, but we will touch on those later. Sure. And I, you could only say audio if you count unscripted like this, what we're doing right now. Oh, so, sure, sure, so sure. I don't think that's really writing, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we won't, I won't say audio. So that's so what's, what, co what's cool about this then is that we both have experience sort of across mediums, but it's actually more emphasized in different areas. So that's kind of mm -hmm. cool because then, then we're adding different things to the discussion. So I like that. Very cool. Uh, all right. So let's get into sort of a comparison and contrast of some of these mediums. Awesome. From the standpoint of being a writer working in them, there is yes. you, you could you could you could divide these up in many different ways by experience, by marketing, as we talked about earlier. But since it's called impactful writing, we're going to focus on the writing of them. Yes. So what would you say that these mediums, film, comics, prose, audio, what would you say that they all have in common? Ooh, that's a really good question. I was thinking this is the one thing I was thinking about. Um, I told I told Caleb before the show, I'm like, I didn't prepare any notes, which is very unusual for me. I usually prepare lots of notes. But the one thing I was thinking about that's been on my mind about this is that um, they all they all require craft in terms of storytelling and story. And you and I have talked about this before. We've talked about this actually several times. It comes up quite frequently on this podcast, which makes sense. Um, and that is that there is a narrative, which is just a telling of events. And then there is a story or storytelling, which is crafting that narrative into uh, a story that has specific meaning or purpose and is intentional in the way that it's being told. And I would say that all three of these mediums um, require that and then require a certain amount of craft. You have to know grammar. You have to know sentence structure. You have to know now different kinds of sentence structure and different kinds of grammar can be used in each medium. But if you really don't know how to write, then no one's going to want to read whatever it is that you're presenting to them, whether it's a screenplay or whether it's a um, work of fiction. Now, I will tell you that you can be, it's sort of unforgivable in the cre in the um, fiction writing world or in the poetry world um, it's sort of unforgivable to be a decent writer. People will very quickly criticize you for your for your writing choices. Whereas in with screenplays, I don't know, you'd have to tell me about comic books because I'm not sure. You can actually get away with not being as talented of a writer because people will gravitate toward the actual story and make some... I would say not as talented a wordsmith. There you go. That's you know, a good way of putting writing, it. Because writing still includes all those other things that people are going to be attracted to. Yeah, and you have to be a talented storyteller in all three. And I would almost argue you almost have to be, you can be an amazing like crafter of sentences and paragraphs and be a great fiction writer and just tell okay stories. Because people will just get, they'll, they'll follow the words on the page and they'll love it. But you can't do that with screenwriting. If it's a bad story, no one's going, it doesn't matter how great your screenplay is written, right? Uh, if you're not a good storyteller, people will will bow out very quickly, I, at least in my experience. Um, and so that's kind of how I would define some of that. You got to be good at storytelling and you have to be good at writing a story. Yes. I think 
Yeah, I think that the, the long and very complicated answer to what these four mediums have in common is actually the second episode that we ever did. So I'll point people to that because it's a very long discussion of what is a story. Mm. What these have in common is that they're storytelling mediums. Yes. And so they're all vessels for story. And so there are certain things you're going to need to understand about story, no matter which of them you're using. Right. Um, shaped narrative, like you mentioned, beginning, middle, and end, problem solving, th that all stories are presenting some attempt to answer what's the good life, you know, right. all of those right. sort of things. And we, we get into all of that in great detail. But so I'd say that the, what they have in common is that they are vessels for story. They are mm. story delivery systems. Uh, and then one other thing that I'll bring up, and this is, it's something they all have, but it plays out differently in each of them. Mm. And that is pacing. Uh, I don't, I don't think we talk yeah. about pacing enough, frankly, because it's extremely difficult to talk about. It's, <laughs> it's right. incredibly hard to define. It's incredibly hard to teach. Yeah. Pacing is, is a, it's a subtle and kind of high level skill. To, you, writers tend to be high level and I'm not even, I'm not putting myself in that, but anyway, who are able to even talk about pacing and learn mm. things from each other about mm. it because the, the mastery of craft that's required to be mm. able to think that way is so high. But at whatever level you're telling a story, you are going to be facing, facing pacing. You're going to be facing <laughs> pacing issues. Yeah. So the way that you pace a novel it's going to be very differently than the way that you pace a comic book. A comic book mm. has a limited real estate, mm. a page mm -hmm. or a panel, mm -hmm. and then it's got to change to the next page or the next panel. Whereas right. a novel is basically continuous scroll. Yeah. You know, it, there are pages, but you, the way you're pacing things aren't there. The pacing is not related to the physical structure. Right. But in comics, the pacing is related to the physical structure. Right. Um, and in film, the pacing is t is related to other things that those mediums don't involve, like right. music and yeah. uh, uh, montage and, yeah. <laughs> and things like that. So whatever medium you're in, take a minute, think about pacing and think about what pacing in that medium is, how it's defined and what it's connected to. Yeah, and also think about um, something else to do with pacing that I think makes it even more difficult is that the audience's desire for different forms of pacing changes drastically depending not even on the medium, but on the uh, these days we'd have to say the type of devices that they're using, right? Like so, 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 like for example, with with time slingers, which I'm pointing to on the wall behind me, some people hate it because if you if you want a literary book, time slingers is the opposite of that. When we wrote that, we wrote it as if someone was going to be reading it on a screen on their way to work. So so the chapters are super short. The sentences are choppy and and almost like more like what you'd see like in uh, 90s screenplays where it's like, which they're they're transitioning out of. But like a lot of choppy writing where it doesn't have like subject, verb, <laughs> uh, direct object. It just has like maybe verb, direct object. That's sort of how Time Slingers was written. Um, because we specifically wrote it for people who were going to be on a train, right? And just reading with a lot of distractions around them and had to get through it quickly. And so I think that, um, yeah, each, each, but that's why a lot of readers who are used to reading a lot would pick up time slingers and go, 
uh, I think this is horribly written. And, and I would say, well, actually, it was super intentional and actually kind of difficult to do. But of course, if you are expecting literary fiction, it's not that, right? So, um, so yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like, like even where the audience is going to be, like, I'm, I'm very curious as to, for someone who's sitting at home versus some, during this pandemic time, versus somebody who's been used to going to theaters, the dynamics shift of how people view the thing. And so we've already seen this happen. We've already seen this come up and I'm getting way off topic, but it is related to what we're talking about. And that is, we've seen all of these directors stand up and go like, I create films for the cinema, meaning for when you go experience it in the theaters, I don't create it for when you're streaming it at home. And that's a very interesting thing to say because you and I would say, well, it's the same medium, but the audience experience is so different. Now we're getting into a blend again and it's, and it's a different thing. So reading a book at night, to, to, to finish my example, if you're reading a book at night and you expect to read something more literary, then Death of a Bounty Hunter is probably going to fit your need a little bit more. If you're on a train then you actually might be more interested in time slingers, right? Like it just depends on where you're at, what your time frame is and, or, and, and, and how that is going to play out in, in your experience of the story. So yeah, pacing is really interesting because it changes over time. I have you been watching WandaVision at all? I have not seen an episode yet. Okay. Sorry. No, it's okay. I'm just going to say, cause I won't spoil anything when I say this, it is paced very interestingly in my opinion. Um, it's paced in a much more, at, at this point in the series, it's, it's sped up a lot, but when it started, it was paced incredibly slowly comparative to what we're used to, especially in that genre in the superhero genre, we're used to go, seeing like large action from the very beginning, lots of tension, lots of conflict, and it starts out pretty slowly. And so, and if you go back and watch movies from the sixties, I mean, some of those movies plod along and, and, and nothing like what you would see in, in the, in the movie these days. And some of that has to do with audience attention spans. So pacing is so difficult that you're right, that all of them involve pacing, but not only is each medium paced differently, but each medium is paced differently depending on the decade you're in, which is just fascinating to me. So great. Yes. Great point. I, I love the pacing of movies in the seventies. It's one mm. of my favorite film pacings that exists. Mm. Uh, I love watching films from the seventies. It's just a very, it's got a pacing feel all its own. Although you do see particularly Tarantino and Rodriguez use a lot of those techniques. Yes. Adapt, adapted for modern audiences, but they're using those same pacing techniques from all the movies that they love that they used to watch. And so this is the other thing is it's cyclical. Mm. You know, what you're describing with Time Slingers, it's serialized fiction. Yes. And the pulps were serialized fiction before yep. that in Victorian. I mean, you know, um, Dickens, those were yeah. all serialized novels. They all came <laughs> right. out, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Those were all the, the longer novels. Those were serialized. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then serialization went away because there was not a great delivery system for it. Magazines had sort of fallen away. Yep. Novels were the ascendancy. And so everyone was writing novels. Yep. And, but it's coming back with, uh, with more digital platforms. It also cycles um, generationally. Like I was just saying, mm -hmm. the movies that you watch when you're young, you tend to bring those techniques back into things that you make as an adult and an audience discovers them for the first time. And, you know, things, things cycle like that. Yep. Uh, uh, fiction podcasts are, 
radio dramas back yeah. again. And radio exactly. dramas, radio dramas were extinct, you know, pretty much. They <laughs> they had gone the way of the dinosaur. And then the podcast medium comes along and suddenly all those techniques for telling a story over the radio come back into play. Yeah. You know. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. So what would you say? Let's let's just look at one medium now. What would you say makes the medium of film unique as a storytelling medium? Oh yeah, this is a, this is a really good question. So it's so funny because once I started writing in film, I could not separate my film writing from the other mediums. So so if you are if you have predominantly been a literary fiction writer, um, I would highly recommend that you study film because I think that the film genre has a lot of richness in terms of, now it also has a lot of politicization and it also has a lot of, uh, it has a lot of, it likes to, it likes what it likes and it doesn't like what it doesn't like. And it depends on who's paying to make films. So just there may be is a little less, um, there's a little less creative play relative to the big producers of things um, that you can get away with. Whereas with, I think with novels, you can get away with a lot more because there's so many different types of novels and they're done in different ways. But I will say that um, film as a, as a medium, I think is so compelling to me because it engages uh, obviously novels are engaging your eyes, but novels are engaging your eyes through the process of, uh, whatever you want to call it, osmosis to understanding of, to creating a visual, but a film goes straight to the visual. So you don't have to create it. It's there, right? So the way you think about writing those visuals and the way you think about what details you communicate about those visuals is inherent in film. Like if you don't think about it, then somebody's going to think about it on the in the production of that thing, and it could actually completely change the meaning that you had in your mind when you were actually writing it. And so, I think that the, that visual and audio is so interesting and so unique. And I think a lot of prose writers would benefit from looking at film and studying the way you write film because it really does drive home how do you create an experience in the mind of someone? And then what words would you have to lay out on a page? Cause I could say, I could say Caleb enters the room, right? But if I, if I don't describe like how you entered the room, almost if you didn't see it in your mind about what angle I was watching when you entered the room, do I have, it, it changes the whole dynamic of what you actually saw and what the audience actually experienced. And that's maybe a really bad example. But like, if I said to you, Caleb, shoots a gun and that's all i say well if i'm looking at you from one angle maybe i don't see the person that you actually just shot right or but if i see you from the person getting shots angle caleb angrily fired the gun from but from your angle it's oh i was super scared and i fired the gun in self-defense and now you're creating these things that um visually will tell you so many different things based on what you reveal and what you don't reveal in the visuals and in the audio and um, I think that that is really interesting with film, and I highly encourage people to to look at that. But what about you? What would you say? Um, I, there's so many great places to go from that, but I, I think we should probably stop here. Okay, <laughs> we'll take a break. Oh yeah, and break, we'll, and then we'll come back, and we'll we'll just keep diving deeper and deeper.
Yes, this is great. This is great. Thank you for reminding me. So before we continue, I'd like to play a quick clip of the audiobook trailer for my novel with Nathan Sheck, Death of a Bounty Hunter. Let's go ahead and take a listen to Death of a Bounty Hunter. This is the audiobook trailer. Of course, if you read the novel, it's, it's very similar. Amazon but... top-selling serial story, Time Slingers. Hang on a second. Comes let, me a go, new... let me go back. There we go. <laughs> From the co-writers of the Amazon top-selling serial story, Time Slingers, comes a new full-cast audiobook, Death of a Bounty Hunter, a supernatural steampunk western. 14 different characters voiced by 11 professional voice performers. A Korean bounty hunter named Flint finds himself in the middle of an occult plot to steal a powerful relic from an innocent woman. Get me the Iron Spur and I will show you true power. Caught between the desperate sheriff who's becoming unhinged at the worst possible time. He mutters the word like a curse dipped in sarcasm. I draw my gun and shoot him between the eyes. And the phantom woman haunting his nightmares. The living always think the dead are worse off. Flint will have to make a choice. Confront the sheriff's posse of misfits or run. But he's losing time. An ogre of a man with a gatling gun for an arm. The brash and headstrong Pinkerton agent, Geraldine Abernathy. And a young, speedster idiot ludicrously named Fancy Dude. They'll all converge at the home of a widow who's lost everything but possesses the relic they all desire, the Iron Spur. Damn that trinket to hell. I don't care what it is or what it does or why the Duskfinders want it. I care about my children. Death of a Bounty Hunter. The weird Western you've been waiting for. Available on www.deathofabountyhunter.com. Well, there you go. That is Death of a Bounty Hunter. Uh, and you can get more information. If it sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can visit deathofabountyhunter.com for more info. And by the way, buying uh, my novel is a great way to support the show. Um, you can also donate monthly to the show or join the Story Geeks Facebook group. And the Facebook group is free, of course. Um, and also, don't forget the trailer for Signal is still coming. So make sure you don't miss out on that at the end of the show. And also... Be sure to check out Caleb's work. You can check out calebmonroe.com or you can go check out The Mongolian Connection, which is available on um, several streaming services, mostly for rent. But I watched it on Amazon Prime absolutely for free. So you can go um, check it out there as well. Uh, more information for all of these things are in the description down below. And that brings us back to our discussion. So, Caleb, let's let's continue. What else have we got? What else have we got right. to talk about? I'm actually going to pause for one second and go yeah. back to talking about genre because Death of Bounty Hunter is described, you describe it as a uh, supernatural steampunk Western. Yeah. And those are actually three different genres. And <laughs> totally so, are. <laughs> but you're laying them over each other to create a Venn diagram to try to be very specific with people so they understand what type of story. But again, that's taxonomy. That's coming afterward. And yeah. that's, uh, that's readers that you're trying to connect with. Um, but the story itself, from a writer's point of view, it's just one story. You're, you're not telling three types of stories and laying them over each other. You're just telling a story. It's a solid piece, but it will have elements of things that you're going to have to decide to highlight or not highlight as you send it out into the world. Yeah. There, and, that, and that was actually, as we wrote the story, like I said, we, we would add a genre here or there because we would say, oh, now we have a problem that we have to solve with the story. So what if we solve it in this way? Well, if we solve it in that way, we just made it science fiction. <laughs> like we literally just asked the question of what if now, 
And that was not a question we had been asking before. And so now it's a, now it's also a science fiction. So it's it's interesting. Like, uh, and we don't we don't advertise it as science fiction, by the way, because the science fiction part of it is the entire reason that the um, environment exists. But you don't really know that in the novel because we don't do that backstory. <laughs> so we hint at that backstory. We don't tell that backstory. So even elements that even elements of other genres may not even appear. <laughs> in your story, but could be influencing your story in, you know, some way, shape or form. So that's a really, really mm -hmm. good, really, really good call out. Yes. So that was our little detour and a, and a um, illustration, show yes. and tell of what we were talking about earlier. <laughs> exactly. Um, so to get back to what makes the medium of film unique, mm -hmm. uh, I think you laid the groundwork very well and covered, covered a lot of the large movements there. I would say sound. Mm. You don't have sound in comics. You don't have sound in novels. You have sound in movies and TV. You have sound in audio. But the sound in movies and TV is paired with video. So it's the only medium that pairs those two together. Mm. And you have shared time. Your audience mm. is all experiencing the story at the same speed. They're all seeing the same person say the same thing or do the same thing at the same time. Everyone is in the same moment, shared time for the audience. It's also only a portion of the writing is actually experienced by the audience. Yeah. Um, easily half of what's on the page in a screenplay, no one ever sees except the people making the film. Great so point. in that regard, a screenplay, beyond just being a story you're telling, it's also a blueprint mm. and it's also a business plan. <laughs> you you know totally. you are the things that you the way you choose to put a sentence will could change the budget either way <laughs> by five hundred thousand dollars you know yeah. the whatever detail it is that you mention in something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everything that you are saying is is story but it's also business plan and then it's also blueprint because the when the screenplay when the writer sits down in front of the blank page or the blank screen, they are the only person who does that. Mm. Everybody else in the entire, all those people in the credits at the end of a film, they all have the script and they're all going through it and pulling out the parts they need for their job to understand how to do what they do. Right. So costumes and makeup and wardrobe and special effects and everybody is, you know, cinematography and even just the type of equipment the grips are going to need off the truck and all of those sort of things that's all also being laid out in the story yeah. that you're telling. Yeah. So that is, that's the most extreme example of that mm. where hundreds and hundreds of people's jobs and income and how much the story costs is all being queued up in the story that you're telling. Yes. In addition to the story you're telling and most people will never see it. So that's, that's something that makes it very unique as a story, as a writer in a story, you know, writer working with a storytelling medium that really makes it stand out. I would say that when you also get the benefit of live action, uh, like live acting and interpretation, because you can write a scene a certain way, but two actors can end up playing it in an entirely different way. <laughs> uh, you know, like they could use the yeah. words. It's not what you were picturing at all. Right. And it improves the story. 
Yes. You know, you could because other skills are being brought in. And that's part of what you have to understand is that you are, as a screenplay, you're writing a launch pad for other people who are better at parts of the storytelling than you are to come in and rock their thing. So you don't want to control your actors in every single detail because you're going to keep them from being the best they are at what they do. You don't want to, you know, control lighting or camera movements or those sort of things. Now, what I'm not saying is that you shouldn't write those things in, which a lot of people are like, don't do that. Don't direct on the page. I say direct on the page all you want. You're (laughs) you're telling a visual story. And the whole point of the screenplay is to create in someone's mind the experience of having watched the movie. Yep. The movie that ends up getting made will not be that because it will be a thousand people's mental version. Yeah. Plus how much of that mental version they could practically pull off on the day with the circumstances that they had available to them. Exactly. But, But you are trying to set up all these other people for success. So you don't want, you don't want the acting to be at your level of craft. You want the person who has dedicated their life to acting to be given all the tools they need to just blow it out of the water. And so that's another, it's, it's very, it's, it's really hard to say, these are the rules for that. Here's how you teach that. It's very hard to teach collaboration or how to phrase a sentence so that it sparks something in someone's mind or in their heart that they can then do something with. Because you can spark something in someone's mind, but maybe it's not uh, something they can work with for what they need to do. So all of that is, it's, you know, it's, it's subtle. And all I will say is just practice, 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 make things, make things, make things. And every time something that you write gets made, you'll see, you know what, I could have done this a for what I was trying to do, I could have done this a little bit differently. And so maybe I'll refine that in the next script. However, you know, for what I was trying to do, it, it turned out better. So maybe I need to let go <laughs> a little more on that part of the next script. You know, like really it's just the feedback loop, which I think I've talked about before. Get a feedback loop. That's the best way to grow. Okay. And so I, 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 I love that. It. Okay. I love that. Let me just pick up on a couple of experiences that I have personally had. The first is, um did you start writing comics when you first started writing no i uh, um i sold a poem and a short story in the same year so that was kind of where it all began that's where it all began okay so i but then very quickly moved on to comics after that maybe it was another nine years before i moved on to oh comics. okay so, so so maybe you yeah. have a same, more similar experience to me yeah. but i think a lot of people who write comics get what you're saying in terms of the collaborative nature faster than I did as someone who started out in prose or in fiction, because in prose and fiction, you literally control everything until an editor goes over it and says like, you know, this doesn't make sense or whatever. You have your, your hands in so many different things relative to what the audience is going to experience that it's hard sometimes to give up a script knowing that it's like, that's not yours anymore. Like it's like the movie that gets made is part, part writer. Um, and I think that, uh, the, the faster you get those feedback loops and the faster you learn that it is a, is a collaborative thing, the better you'll actually be at knowing how to collaborate in terms of getting your ideas onto the screen. Because for example, if you know, both you and I have collaborated with things that have appeared on screen, right? Like you did with the Mongolian connection and I've done it several times with, um, with, movies or sorry, sorry, short films. And I will tell you the times when I collaborated well with my director were when I brought them in, wrote with them and 
and fully expressed what it was that we were trying to say together so that I could paint the picture in my director's eyes about what I was trying to accomplish. And then all his ideas made sense and augmented, not all of them actually, but, but a lot of them made sense and augmented what I was trying to do as opposed to there were sometimes where I was more of the director's vision and I was called in to write almost always a very frustrating experience because if the director is somebody who doesn't know exactly what they want and know that they should have chosen you, you're just trying to catch up to them at every point And you're going like, I, I don't even think the story is a good story. Like, well, I don't even know why we're telling it. So it depends very much on how you're collaborating with someone um, and what's going to finally end up on the screen. I know a very talented friend of mine I collaborated with and I would be like, the movies that we created were not very good. Um, but then I have other friends that go, the movies that we created, I think are fantastic, right? Um, so that's really, I think, really important. The collaborative nature is you picked up on fantastic. Um, two more things really quickly. I almost think that writing for people who will go produce a film is almost, not entirely, but almost a different medium than actually writing for an audience that will see it on a screen. Um, I don't know. You, you can you can give me feedback about that in a minute, but I almost feel like it's it's different because you're you you have somebody who's experienced with how it will appear on screen and you're trying to get them convince them that it should appear on screen and that you should hand it over to a team of people who will work on it but totally different discussion probably its own podcast um the the last comment i wanted to make that i thought of as you talked about that was the one thing that you need to be on the same page with as you turn your script over to other people is remember the visual cues when we created our, our our Star Wars fan film, Star Wars Rivals, we had a visual cue that was an indicator of a plot point that would occur later. We lost that prop on set. We lost it. We could not find the prop. I'm on set. I don't recommend that writers be on set. Um, I, I find it very stressful to be on set because I'm like a, in my normal day job, I'm like a uh, get it done kind of person. And so you know, if you're working with a director that likes to just kind of make sure everything's perfect before they start, it will drive you nuts. But that being said, I, I'm sure the opposite is true too, um, the vice versa. But what happened to us was we lost the prop that really mattered to a plot point that was going to happen later. The director was in a rush because we were behind schedule and he was just going to be like, no, we just need to move forward and like film the next thing, which is ironic because I'm usually the one rushing through things. But because I was a producer, I'm like, it's not going to work. You, you, you have a plot point. You have a, you have a visual cue missing that you have to have. Because if you don't have the visual cue, everyone will go, where in the world did this come from? And so I was able to on set go, here, I got an idea. Take that, take that thing and put it here. And now we've made the connection to the visual cue and now it will work again. And I just, I use that as an example to say, your visual cues, when you write them into the script, have to matter they have to matter so much that the director would never leave them out if they matter later on to the plot points and so that's something you would just need to consider where if you're writing a novel you can think of it's it's more of a, a heady experience and what people are thinking of as opposed to what they're seeing um and very very different so remember mm -hmm. the visuals for sure because they're really really important to your point um about how the story actually ends up getting told yes yes so I'm going to real quick use three more metaphors for awesome. film writing to sort of help wrap our brain around this very odd storytelling medium. Yeah. One is it's not a document. It's a web of relationships because 
thousands of people are doing their job based on what you're writing. And you're going to, there's going to be give and take between your words and all of them. There's yeah. going to be some things that you think improve the story. There's going to be some things that you don't quite think improve the story. And, but it's all relationship. And just like human relationships, it's not perfect, but it can be amazing. Yeah. And so you are creating a, a family, a, yeah. a group of people who are going to live together and work together for a set period of time to make this one story together yeah. in this shared and collaborative vision. And so sometimes you need to think about your document yeah. as you would think about having dinner with your family, not as you would think about um, your, your book or your words, your precious words. Oh, I because love that. Sometimes what you, sometimes there's something and you know, it's going to make that scene not, it's going to make that scene weaker, mm -hmm. but you also know, you know what, I've got to trade that because it's not going to ruin the movie. And I really need this person on my side on, in this upcoming part story battle, because that will change the movie that, you know what I mean? That will make a huge effect. So Absolutely. there's, you're always having to sort of make those judgments as well. Every hill is not the hill to die on every everything is not the thing to get perfectly it's mm. it's relationship and so mm. you're you're looking for an overall result in relationship not for every interaction to be perfect and brilliant i would also say what you're creating is a living document meaning if you think there's ever going to be a point when the screenplay is finished you are wrong the screenplay <laughs> is never finished Right. There's just a point at which this unfinished thing is abandoned and it becomes this other thing called a movie. But even then the story elements are being rearranged through the editing, through the shooting yep. <laughs> um, and uh, the various cuts. And so a screenplay is never done. It is a living document. So you also need to be okay with that. Some mm. writers can't handle that. Can't handle the fact that something is never done, that someone else will always have a, a say yeah. In, in, in it. And so then maybe writing movies is not for you. And same thing with the relationship thing. Sometimes, you know, if you, if you can't navigate that, maybe it's not for you. And that's not a judgment at all. Don't make yourself miserable. <laughs> if, you, <laughs> like, if you're not built to do certain types of things, don't make yourself miserable by insisting you have to do them. And then finally, and this is maybe actually how I think of it the most. Mm. And this, this is sort of a, a little bit of a, not a pushback, but sort of a little bit of a, of a departure from what you were just saying about visual cues and how uh -huh. they need to be the visual cue needs to be so clear that the uh, director would, you know, would never leave them out of the film. And I would say part of what you're doing, part of what your screenplay is, is a lighter. And mm. the job of the lighter is to set on fire the imaginations of everyone else who's going to work on the project. Mm. And there are things that will set their imagination on fire that don't need to be in the script, but the movie will be better. And mm. you have to sort of learn where that is for you and for your collaborators, but you can, you can write how something smells. No one is ever going to experience that. But if you describe the smell of a room, you can actually, you can use that to ignite certain types of imagination in the people who are going to be set dressing that room mm. and lighting that room and, and walking around in that room and doing things. And so to me, the final arbiter of whether something goes into the script or not is, is this going to help set someone's imagination on fire or is it ballast, you know? And, and a lot of that is not necessarily visual. 
but it serves a purpose. A great example of this, I'm going to come back to him later too, Tony Gilroy, one of my favorite writers and favorite directors. But there's a, there's a, seg, there's a portion of the Michael Clayton script. Mm. And it's a scene where Michael Clayton is looking at some horses. And on, <laughs> on screen, it's, it's a very poignant moment. But mm-hmm. all you're seeing is Michael looking at some horses. Yeah. In the script, Tony actually, in, in one of those, oh, you should never do this. Well, I'm Tony Gilroy. I can do it sort of moments. He just describes what Michael's thinking in that moment. You, uh, no one will ever see that <laughs> except the actor, except the director. But he he actually goes into the person's mind. I don't recommend doing that often um, because you uh, most people don't understand when to pull out that very rare tool. Um, you know, as far as I know, it's the one time Tony Garoy has used it in his entire <laughs> body. Work, right? So most people don't. Most of us, <laughs> I'm including myself in that, yeah. um, like pacing, we may not we just may not be able to deploy that well. So hold off on that. See if you can do it other ways first. See if you can do it in the more tried and true ways first. But uh, all of that to say a, a lighter. Yeah, that that's actually phenomenal because I have listened to, you know, actor roundtables and you listen to an actor roundtable and you, you'll hear them say, this is very common actually for them to say, uh, somebody will ask like, well, how did you get into this particular scene? Like, how did this, how did this, what did you have to or think of a memory? Did you have to think of this? You to, and I'm sure every actor is different, but a lot of the best actors that I've heard talk about that, they all say it depends on what's on the page. Like what's on the page gets me to a place where I can then, you know, get the emotion on screen, get the emotion in me to be displayed on screen in a way that the audience will understand and engage with it. And and that is maybe one of the best writing challenges that you can possibly give a writer is to say you have constraints, but at the end of the day, this director, this actor, these, um, all the people that go into making the film, all the production crew, they have to feel a certain way so that they can get everything onto the screen that you intended. Um, and that's, I think that metaphor that you just shared is a brilliant way of suggesting that very thing, right? So, um, and because a lot of times too, like as a, as a producer, I have an unfair advantage over most writers in that I'm usually around, if not on set, I'm usually talking to the actors because I'm the one hiring them. Despite the fact that the director gets to choose which actor or actress he wants to do, to be in the thing, I'm there with them saying, I think we should choose her or him. And then I get to talk to them about what the character means and what the character, di- who it, who the character is. And so there's not an interpretation needed for, as much of an interpretation needed for me if I'm paying for the thing. Um, and the same thing with the audiobook in, in terms of directing the actors. But to your point, all you get is a lighter. <laughs> you don't get you don't get a conversation. All you get is a lighter. And it, and if you're trying to light something and the people are just not going with it because it's not the, there's not enough of a flame to get the, to ignite them to do the thing that they're supposed to show on screen, you didn't win. You lost. You lost that battle. And and like you said, sometimes you actually you actually win that battle because what you were trying to light is not as good as what they ended up doing. But mm-hmm. still, as a writer, I love that metaphor. That that is a fantastic metaphor. And I'll shut up about it. But I'm super, <laughs> I'm super excited yeah, about you, it. You can compliment my metaphors as much as you want. Um, <laughs> so, and I will just I will say this: 
if you want a really detailed breakdown of what lighter living document relationship business plan and blueprint can all look like in a script, go back to our episode from November where Drew, the Drew Thomas, the director and my co-writer on Mongolian Connection, where we take a deep dive into the practicalities of that film getting made and scenes that were on the page that didn't end up in the movie and things that ended up in the movie that were on the page and, and how things changed in between and, and what the factors were that changed some of those things. And the fact that the script again was never finished. It was always still being uh, fine tuned. If you want a very long and detailed breakdown of that, we have a whole episode for it. So go check that out. If that's something that makes you curious or that you want to try to understand a little better. Absolutely. So, comics yeah what makes the medium of comics unique so it's interesting because i have not written in the medium as much so you're gonna have a much better answer to this than i will have but i will say that i have studied it actually probably uh, a decent amount just because i'm i love comics and so i i from a writer standpoint i'm always looking at them the the it's interesting to me because the main difference between comics and film to me are very similar, but there are two main differences between comics and film. Um, and that is you're trying to ignite primarily one or two other people as opposed to hundreds of other people, potentially dozens to hundreds, um, sometimes thousands, actually. Uh, you're And so because you, you're working very intimately with an artist, generally speaking, um, and there are two big differences of the format that matter a lot. When you think of writing uh, the the actual technique of writing a script, you tend to think in terms of blocks of chunks that are called scenes and how the scenes play out, how the scenes are ordered, how the scene gets from uh, every single scene has a beginning, middle, end. The, the most similar thing in terms of a comic book is a page, not a scene, because at the end of a page, the reader has to do something. So if they're on the left page, their eyes have to go back and up to the right side of the page. By the way, they may see the right page when they open the spread, even before you get a chance to reveal something. Which so is a lot why of all surprises need to be on an even numbered page. Exactly, because you want to be able to, for them to turn the page into the surprise. Um, and so you, you think about the craft of doing it differently based on how they're going to view it. The other thing I think for me, as I studied comics versus film, is that film is the film is the motion of going from one for, portraying itself. So if I say if I say there's there's uh, there's a fight between two characters, it is a complex set of motions. Comics are almost like saying, what is the most important visual aspect to share? Because it is a moment of the fight or several moments of the fight that need to be conveyed in their importance. And the reader is not going to get to see all of the movement that would occur in this, in this, um, in this medium. So I think from my standpoint, like that makes it really compelling because you have to think not only do you have to think there's a fight and it's going to be compelling, there's going to be these visual elements. You have to decide which visual elements of that fight make the most sense <laughs> as you're laying out the page. And so those are the, those are the things that I would say would be the biggest thing. The only other thing I'll say is that comics allow comics is sort of a bridge in my mind between fiction and film in that comics also get to explore if you choose to a first person sort of narrative. 
I don't think maybe with VR film will be able to change this paradigm, but even then I have a lot of concerns. I don't think you can express on screen very well a first person deep introspective uh, writing. Your POV is almost always third person. And if it is first person, which is very unusual and very uh, uncomfortable in a script, it is almost, it is my, by the way, spoiler alert, my preferred way of writing prose because of the uniqueness of it, writing in the first person, I mean. Comics are sort of a, a hybrid of the two, right? You can write, you can even write your description of the page in third person, but you can actually write captions that are the character thinking through what's going on in, in his or her mind on the page at the same time that these actions are taking place. And so that's a little bit of a hybrid. You don't get to go as deep as you get to go in a novel, which is based on the, the space on the page, but you do get to explore that a little bit more in which a way that I think movies almost always fail if they try to do that. <laughs> so that would be kind of my, my wrapping that with a bow, but I want to hear your answer because you're much more familiar with the genre. Yes. So, uh, versus the shared time of films, comics are individually controlled time. Uh, it is the time in the comic is is relative to the one reader, and that's it. Mm -hmm. They can spend as long on a page looking at as many visual details as they want. They can move through it quickly. They can flip back a few pages and read back up to it. They can skip ahead. They get whatever. They have complete mm -hmm. control over what time and for how long they interact with what part of the story. Mm -hmm unlike a movie where that is controlled. Mm. Everyone is gonna be in that same scene for the same amount of time. You know, everyone's gonna see the same number of cuts or all that sort of stuff. So part of what you're doing is creating a lattice for your reader to move around in. And, and this lattice is created by images. And like you said, you can only pick so many. Your, your average 20 page comic with your with an average of five panels a page, which is both of those are pretty standard. That's 100 pictures. You get 100 images to tell whatever the story is that you're thinking of telling. And if you wanted to, you could just number down the page one to 100 and fill in what is the next, what is the image? What is the image? What is the image? Everything is visual in comics. There is no sound. Mm -hmm. There is no motion. You can, cre you can create visual approximations of those, sound effects or blurs or things like that, but those are visual approximations trying to convey something that's not visual. All the information in a comic is visual. Hmm. Uh, there are, one of my favorite things about comics is that it is the most informationally dense of all the storytelling mediums. Mm. You can have more streams of information on a single page in a comic than you can in any other storytelling medium that I've encountered at least. Mm. Mm. And so for instance, on one page of a comic, mm. you can have the stream of information that is the characters talking to each other. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you have the stream of information that is their actions, which mm -hmm. will which may add to or contradict the things they're saying to one another. Right. At the same time, you ha can have third person captions, which again, can add to or contradict what's in the other two streams. At the same time, you can have the, the, you can have captions or thought bubbles showing what's going on inside each of those characters' minds, which again, can add to or contradict what's going on in all the other streams of information. So <laughs> I'm, I'm up to, if there's two characters, I think I'm up to what, six or seven streams of information. Oh, you might be up to 10 almost. And, yeah. yeah. And then, and then, for instance, 
the way that one of the six panels on that page is colored could also tell you that it's a flashback. Yeah. And without having without anything else going on, it can be, you know, and so just you can put more layers of information in a single page, in a single panel, in a comic than you can in any other medium. Because mm -hmm. only one person can talk at a time in a film. Or if they talk over each other, the point is that you can't really make out what they're saying. Right. But in a comic, you can have everyone saying, talking and thinking and <laughs> reacting to other people's talking and thinking or reading each other's minds if, they, if, they're, if, they, if they're telepathic. You, know, right. you can have all of that going on at the same time because your reader has control and they can step down into this moment and move around inside of it. And what is this person thinking? And what is this person thinking? And what is this person saying? What is this person saying? That's the advantage of this sort of individually controlled time is that you are, you're creating something that people can sort of step into and they get to spend enough, they can spend enough time in that, that single moment, that single second that they can absorb all of those different layers of information. That's I maybe love, my favorite unique that. comic of the comic page. Yeah. Uh, I would say one thing that gets talked about is the unlimited physical budget. Hmm. Ink on a page costs the same whether your entire comic takes place in a coffee shop or you're blowing up existence. Yeah. The, the, the actual drawings and the printing of the comic are the same. It doesn't work that way in movies. If you tell a intimate story of two people at dinner or you tell Avengers 2, <laughs> those are going to cost different things. Because, But as far as the production costs of a comic, doesn't matter. Mm, mm. So that creates a freedom of subject matter that is part of why I think superheroes are a genre phage just because you can you can do anything with it. There, there aren't any of those kind of constraints, physical, budgetary, production costs. Now, you can make a book a little bit cheaper by making it black and white versus color. So like there, there are always little sure, gray sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But by and large, printing a book is the same as printing a book. Yeah. However, as, as Kieran Gillen has pointed out very, very well, you are spending a budget and that budget is the time, energy, and attention of your artist. Mm. So if you, so 10 two page spreads of 1000 ships colliding <laughs> with 2000 flying heroes is the budget on that is huge. Right. For the time, energy, and attention it will take your artist to draw those. Right. Versus a, a a scene in a white room with two people talking. Right. You know, and so that's a low budget page. So you're gonna in in a given script, you're gonna have high budget pages and low budget pages, but the budget you're spending is not money, it's the time and attention of your artist. Right. Knowing they've got they only have you know 20 to 30 days to do this. Yeah. And so if you're if you're giving them 23 day pages, yeah. <laughs> you're you're making it impossible for them to do their job. Yeah. So you need to keep in mind that if if you're going to have that one huge incredibly time consuming two page splash, then you better also have a lot of much simpler scenes that the artist can skate through so that they have time to spend on that big one. So budget just works very differently in comics yeah. and it's a very yeah. different budget. It's not a financial budget. So for that reason, I would say that a screen, a screenplay is a, it's a blueprint and a business plan. Mm. A comic is really just a blueprint. 
Mm. It's not a business plan because it's going to cost the same to print the comic. You know, it's a there. So it's a blueprint for a story. And again, most people are not going to read most of the words that go into your script. Right. And it is relational, but like you said, it's a much tighter relationship. Yeah. Basically two people, sometimes three right. are going to read your story. The yeah. artist is going to, I mean, it's the artist, the editor, and sometimes the licensor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if mm-hmm. you're writing, if you're writing um, Ice Age, then someone at DreamWorks is also going to have to weigh in. That's the way right. licenses work. And now your colorist will be reading it for clues as well. Your letterer will be reading it. Inker, if you have an inker, you know, there's your d- graphic designer even as they think about the look of the book. Mm. But by and large, the main person that you're communicating with mm. is your artist. And your editor is sort of the spectator of that communication between mm. the two of you. Mm. And, and helping you say, well, you know what? Maybe if you said this this way, they he would get it a little better. Or she yeah. would understand <laughs> it a little better. Or it would just pull things off in the best possible way. You know? Yeah. So it's so in that regard, blueprint is kind of getting mixed with letter with the epistle you are writing a letter that only one or two people are going to see right and they are then going to execute in a visual story and it will have your words and sound effects and the pacing that you put into it and and it usually the number of panels or pages and all that sort of stuff but again depending on your relationship with your artist that can change yeah and this also means that depending who your artist is your scripts will look different, differently. So a a great example is I was writing two series at the same time. Mm. One artist, she was incredibly good with setting, with clothing, Mm. with environment, but just not quite, she was good, but not quite as natural with action scenes. Okay. And then I had a, I was working with another artist at the same time on a different book who was just, so good at action that that really so with with the first artist i will my main goal was to get out of her way at all mm. of those things that she was better at than me yeah <laughs> so i it was a period book and so i would say it's the year 1969 have at it because yeah. she was going to be so much better at that than me if i tried mm. if i tried to talk about what people were wearing and all of that sort of the set decoration and same thing with this other artist when it came to the action scenes i if i wrote too much i was actually making the action scenes worse yeah because that was the place where he needed to be i needed to get out of his way right and so i was the my scripts for those two books even though i was writing them at the same time same writer looked different because i was focusing on different parts of the story. I was Mm. getting detailed about action in this book and not talking about what they wear at all. Over here, I was being very clear with how things look and what people are wearing. But when it came to action, I was like, okay, for the next two pages, you know, here's the broad strokes of the fight. And I'm not even going to, I'm not telling you what the panels are or where the page turn is because you're better at that than I am in this, you know? And so, so letter and script getting brought Mm. together. And the fact Mm. that your script is going to be different depending who the letter is to. Mm. Um, as I mentioned earlier, pacing has a Mm. physical element Mm. and that is the page turn. Even if you're reading on a tablet, there's still a moment where you're going from a page to the next page or from a panel to the next panel. If you're doing panel view 
And that is, that is a physical change. Mm. And so pacing is tied to physical changes like the page turn, like we were saying, always put your surprises on an even numbered page. I've, I've restructured entire scripts because I realized there needed to be a surprise, but I was going to have to rewrite four scenes for that surprise to fall on a page turn and not be given away because it's on the uh, right-hand page. So right. there's a physical aspect to pacing on that's not like you see in any of these other things. Right. Screenplay is continuous scroll. Novel is continuous scroll. But there are distinct physical units in the comic of the page and the panel, as you, as you pointed out. Also, you have control, you and your artist, your art team, have control over the size of the images. Mm. So when you're watching a movie, it's the same size image the whole time. Right. Different things are being done with it. Different things are being done inside of it. The speed with which those images are coming at you are changing, but it's always going to be the same aspect ratio. It's the size of your TV. It's the size of the screen in the theater where you are. It's the size of your phone. But on a comic page, every single image you can change the size and the aspect ratio. Mm. So you could you can have a square image followed by a widescreen image, followed by a full page image, followed by 22 small images, <laughs> and you can do things with that. I, I wrote a page once in a comic where I was trying to, we were trying to convey just the absolute chaos and the breakdown of, of this physical confrontation that happened. Mm. And so, there was just a single panel across the top of the page and the next line was two panels and the next was three and the next was four and the next was five until at the bottom, I think we had 12 small panels, just Whoa. with a little fraction of the action, this, 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 just showing that the characters could not keep track of it any more than we as the readers could, you know? And mm -hmm. so, so you can do things by controlling the size of the image and the number of them on the page and their juxtaposition toward to one another all of that sort of stuff, whether there's borders between them, whether there's not borders between them, uh, uh, you have a lot more control over the nature of each individual image. Right. But it's a string of pearls. You, you're going to have, like a, like I said, you're going to have a hundred images or a longer issue or a shorter issue, or it's a short story, or it's a, you're going to have a set number of images really that you can pull off. Mm. And so comics is moments rather than motion. Mm. Film has motion. None of these other mediums do. Hmm. Comics has these infinite moments where someone can spend as much time in that one moment in that one panel as they want. I have a hmm. friend who takes an hour to read a comic book because he just looks at every single detail in the artwork. And I will read that same comic in five or 10 minutes because I'm going through for the story, but then I'll go back and I'll right. spend time with some of those important moments and, but again, that's up to me as the reader and that's up to him as the reader. And so you're providing moments that your reader interacts with in, in, in so many different ways, but you, you don't have motion, you don't have shared time, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. That's that was awesome. a very long answer, but that's. Oh, it's a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. That breaks it down really, really well. I mean, I think people can, people can actually take that and, and, and understand, um, you know, if you want to be a comic book writer, that's, that's, a blueprint for the blueprint, if you will, <laughs> right? Like, I love it. It's great. Uh, so pros, we're going to move a little more into your wheelhouse here than yeah. mine. So 
take it away. What makes the medium of prose unique? And in and, and in this instance, we are talking about prose fiction. Right. Uh, I'm going right. to mention nonfiction a little bit later, but here when we say prose, we're talking about fiction. Yeah. So it's interesting because I I change the way I approach prose because of studying the other mediums. Um, and what I realized that was inherent with prose that is much more difficult to achieve with the other mediums is that conveying the deep emotional process of thinking and feeling is almost impossible in a script because you have to get the actor to think the way so it's a different it's a different type of thing but you're getting an actor to think the way that you think their character should think but you're doing it in very few words and it's not complex you're trying to give them like you said this lighter that will ignite what their I'm going to keep using that metaphor now. <laughs> you ignite what their imagination is relative to the way that character is thinking or feeling. But they will augment it. Like we talked about, they will augment it, right? And so you're primarily in, in what you'll do is you'll give them visual cues. Like you mentioned, um, to, would you say Tony Gilroy? Is that his name? Yes. Yeah. He said, I'm just going to tell you what this character is thinking. But that's, like you said, crazy rare. Like it's not something you normally do. In comic books, you can get at these little instances of how a character is feeling, but they have to be bite-sized chunks. The one thing that a that a novelist can do that neither of the other writers in the other genres can do is that you can actually go through the process by which a person's emotions or thoughts, preferably both, change as they develop that that thought process and that is something you cannot do on the other two uh mediums um not really you can do a semblance of it but you can't do it the way that you can do it because you don't have this you don't have the um you will always have space constraints or even uh industry constraints like we talked about with film which will prevent you from being able to do that so i so time slingers was written in the third person because we were not technically even trying to explore that at all we were trying to do a, a serialized like you said serialized fiction um that was bite-sized when we got to death of a bounty hunter i really dug into that concept and so death of a bounty hunter has three different narrators where, where we are inside those characters heads we know how those characters are thinking we know how those characters are feeling we can even see that sometimes the character is thinking or feeling in a way that is clearly not the appropriate way of thinking or feeling based on what stimulus they're being stimuli they're being they're being exposed to or at least they it wouldn't be the way we would approach it and i think that is the beauty of prose from a storytelling standpoint that the other mediums cannot quite get to and that is how does the human brain process stimuli and you can actually embody the character as the writer in such a way that you start to process the stimuli as that character might process the stimuli. Um, not that you shouldn't do that with the other two genres, but your interpretation of it is going to be very different. You're you're actually going to do work out on a page in writing what the character is moving to in their thought process or in their emotional state. Um, depending on what scene you're writing or, or how they're flowing throughout the throughout the book. So I think that writing in the first person is a 
Um, it's not, I wouldn't maybe say it's unique because in comics you can do it. You can try to do it in film, but it's very rarely done well. But, but in prose, you can really dig deep into that. The other thing about um, writing fiction, uh, writing prose, is that the the way that the, that you lay a sentence out onto a page and the way you lay a paragraph out onto a page, um, it is the most impactful directly to your audience. So if you do choose to now, now this is not to say you should not entertain the people who are going to read the script. Cause like you said, it's a, it's a lighter that's going to get them to do something. It's not to say that when you um, do your comic book script that you shouldn't think about all of the things pertaining to this, but when it comes to, I have to lay out a paragraph that will engage someone's brain in the absence of the visual and in the absence of the sound to prepare the visual and to prepare the sound and then to walk through the character's emotions and their, and their thought processes um, that is something that I think is is pretty unique to um, to prose. And so if you're going to spend time on the craft, you're actually spending time, in my opinion, on different things, depending on the medium that you are writing to. And in this case, in prose, it is going to be things like sentence structure. It is going to be things like, and by the way, we're not even talking really about transforming that into audio because audio is actually different. Um you can write a gorgeous sentence that is read very eloquently in the mind that in uh, a voice actor, it will not be able to get through, right? So, so there's, that's even a separate thing that we're not even going to address today. But, but as far as the novel writing goes, that's what I tend to focus on is um, how do I walk through? Now you have chapters instead of scenes. Chapters can contain multiple scenes if you want to. But as you're, as you're looking at this chapter, it's this longer exploration of a character's emotions, their thought process, and how those emotions and thought processes are then making their way onto the page and then eliciting visuals and audio and feeling and thinking in the brain of your, of your recipient, the reader. So... <laughs> that's a long answer, but that's what gets kind of how I would, I would think of prose as being different. What about you? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I think that part of what makes prose unique is there's only one information stream. We were just talking about how many there are in comics and that there are multiple ones in film. There's the sound, there's mm -hmm. the speed, the motion, there's what actors are doing, there's what they're saying, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But you have one information stream in prose, and that is word after word after word. It's a series of black marks on a page, and that's it. That's what you have to convey your information. But the advantage of having that one, inf only the one information stream, is that you can go as deep as you want, as textured as you want. You can spend as long inside a character's emotional or thought process as you want. Yep. You can, you can spend... I remember reading an Umberto Eco book where there was one sentence that lasted three pages <laughs> describing a door, <laughs> just a wooden door, carved yeah. door at a monastery. You can do that in prose. You yeah. can't do that in a movie. You can't just stop and say, let's look at this door for 10 minutes, everybody. <laughs> it's not going to, you're going to lose your audience. You could do that. Right. You could, and there are, there are filmmakers, um, who Bellatar, who have just like seven take movies where it's just, it is that. Yeah. But not many people watch Bellatar films. And it, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's incredibly important 
for people to be experimenting with what the limits of storytelling are because all of that comes back into the mainstream and provides new tool after new tool after new tool. But you also have to know how far out you want, how far you out you want to be on that spectrum. And uh, if you've ever read the um, transcendental style of film, mm, no, it was it was written before he became a successful screenwriter by um, the writer of Taxi Driver and uh, oh, a bunch of Martin Scorsese films, and it was about these types of things pacing and and what have you and then he revisited it recently he wrote and directed um first presbyterian which mm. i love my favorite films of the decade mm. and he revisited transcendental sound film and he wrote a new introduction to it and he's got a chart this amazing chart it's a circle and it's got three streams going mm. at it and it's it, in the middle it's just straight down the middle fastball narrative but then you can go in three different directions. One of them ends in security footage. One of them ends in <laughs> like, like literally just like, there's all these gradations. And then there's a circle that he calls the Tarkovsky limit of after the filmmaker Tarkovsky, where it becomes much less narratively coherent afterwards. You have officially left the mainstream when you've crossed the Tarkovsky limit. In oh, the circle. I love but this. Yeah. It's an amazing way of lining up how, how some of these things relate to each other. That's a tangent. Mm. Um, all of that to say, in prose, you can spend three pages in one sentence on a door if you want to. You absolutely <laughs> can. And that right. you don't have that kind of freedom in other in other mediums. Uh, comics has a limited version of this. Right. You can spend an entire issue inside a character's mind, but you're still only going to get 10 to 12 sentences on each page because of the way art and word balloons and the size of the page and panels, how all of that works. Yep. Maybe if you're, um, you know, Michael Bendis, you'll fit in 40 sentences <laughs> on the page, but it's going to be mostly word balloons, you know, yep. and, but in, because there is no such thing as the page. Right. Um, when it comes to prose, you can turn the page, but also you can just scroll infinitely. It's just, and when you do turn the page, it's not like anything has to be wrapped up. It can be mid word. And then right. you turn the page and just keep going. Right. So that there's no length constraints to prose. Your story can be 10,000 words. It can be 110,000 words. Both of those will get called a book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, work, it doesn't work that like a comic has to be a certain number of pages. The number of pages that the publisher, even if the publisher is you, is going to pay to have in that issue of the story. A film yeah. is going to be a certain number of minutes. And you know, when you start to approach three hours, your audience numbers start to go down. Yeah. But if you're you are to one hour, your audience numbers go down. There is right. a sweet spot in there. And that's why we we tend to average films as being two hours. We talk about screenplays as 120 pages to equal 120 minutes. All of that is just real back of the napkin math. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's the it's just the broadest way of trying to get a hold of those things, but there is a, there is a, a sweet spot. And with prose, I would say there's not a sweet spot. You, yeah. you can write flash fiction. You can write, I mean, Lord of the Rings is three books or is it one book? You know, you just, you, right. just, you can do it and figure out how it was good. How it's going to break out and get into people's hands later. Yeah. You don't have that same control over other things and related. And so, and also there is, zero budget 
because you're not even using an artist's time and attention. Right. You're using your reader's time and attention. So you're really only, your budget is what I've called before is your spiritual budget, which is what are you asking of, of your reader? What, mm. what are they going to have to experience? How much time are they going to spend? How much concentration are you choosing complicated sentences or simple ones? Yep. All of that is, is going to change how, what they are spending. You're stewarding their imagination and their time and their attention. But you can you can make yourself really obscure and hard to understand if you want. Yeah, <laughs> and, go for and it. You can super, maybe even too easy to understand if you want. That's those are those are choices. Yeah. Um. And and they're not budget related choices, other than just yeah. the experience budget of your reader. So you can you can do anything in prose, any action or setting or location. If you can find words to describe it. Yeah. Which can be the challenge. Sure. Sometimes if you can find words to describe it, it can go in there and it doesn't matter. It'll cost the same as, as anything else. Yeah. Also surprises can happen anywhere. Mm. They tend to happen at the end of chapters because you're, 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 you're trying to do something akin to the page turn in comics there. Right. Where right. you, it's a natural pause point and you don't want the pause. <laughs> you, you like you need to provide pauses because of rhythm, because you're switching between POVs, because your reader needs to pee, and you you want to <laughs> right. scenes transition because the story needs to go to another scene. You're gonna have to these natural pause moments, and so, but you also really want people. You don't want people to pause and then never return. Right. So so much of there's so much of the craft of prose comes around these breaks, these scene transitions, these chapter transitions. But you can put a surprise anywhere. You can put a surprise on page one of the chapter and then again on page two and then again on page three and again on page four. And then you can wait till page 100 for another surprise. <laughs> right. You know, like there's no there's no it needs to be on a right pan page like with a comic. There's no you know, there's no you need to. I'm trying to think of what the film version of that is. I'm having trouble with it. But anyway. Yeah. Also, and we don't think about this enough, but mm -hmm. you talked about it. Prose is a visual medium. Mm. just like comics and just like movies people mm. are looking at something and the story is going into their brain by through what they're looking at yeah and so things like the length of your paragraphs and sentences how often you use commas all of these are visual choices right and they will affect your reader's experience in a very fine-tuned and direct way it yeah. doesn't happen in screenplay. It doesn't happen in comics because most people never see those script. They don't see how you lay it out on the page. Right. Your collaborators do, but no one else does. Right. In prose, everyone sees exactly how you laid it out on the page. And so it is still a visual medium and giant blocks of text that don't break for paragraphs are off-putting. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe, maybe you want to do that. Maybe you really want to slow something down and you want people to wade through it because that's something you're doing intentionally. Just make sure you're doing it intentionally. Right. And very short, brief, punchy sentences, one sentence paragraphs, two sentence paragraphs. You'll see a lot of that in action scenes and yep. in thrillers because that speeds up the process of reading. You get through two pages like that much faster than you get through two pages that are two paragraphs. You know? Absolutely. And so it's a visual medium. So think about that. Think about how it looks on the page, the size of your paragraphs, the length of your sentences, where you put commas, because all of that is an experience that your reader is having. Yeah. And so it's uh, the best way I've heard it described 
one of the best ways I've heard the, the visual aspect of prose described is as mind control. You just have, you have random black markings. Mm. That's what you mm. have. Mm. And you're trying to take things inside your brain, put down the right combination of black markings so that those things appear in someone else's brain. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, it, that is also how a screenplay works. And that is also how a comic script works. But again, only for a few people. Yes. This everyone. So you are trying to, you're trying to plant those. So in a comic, it can be like a letter. And I know certain types of things are going to plant that in my artist's mind and certain things I don't need to worry about. Yep. But in a book, you have to try to find what is going to plant the same things in as many people's minds as possible for the story yeah. to work. Yeah. So you got that mind control. There's also something to think about, which is the invisibility of your language. Uh, and yeah. so literary fiction is draws attention to the language itself. Mm. It is the mm. way things are said that are the attraction in literary language in, in literary fiction. Yeah. Thrillers don't want to do that. Right. If you're drawing attention to your sentence, then people are not feeling thrilled by what's happening. Right. Right. They're being, they maybe they're getting thrilled by the way you're telling, by what you're using to tell them what's happening, but the what's happening is not thrilling them. So you might actually remove an emotion of like fear or suspense in the sentence as opposed to putting it into the sentence. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So that's something to keep in mind as a prose writer is how visible do you want your language to be? Yeah. There's not a right or wrong answer. I will point out that literary fiction, which is the most visible language, mm. um, almost all genres. The goal of genres is to be invisible. Science fiction, fantasy, westerns, romance, thrillers, crime, mystery. The goal is, is to be for your language to be transparent yes. and for your reader to be in that world in those situations. Literature, the goal is for your reader to know they're a reader. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. You know, and that's yeah. different than being yeah. in that. And you just have to know where you want to fall on that spectrum. I will point out literary fiction is the lowest selling of all the genres and romance is the highest selling of all the genres. Yes. So even though everyone talks about literary fiction with respect and no one talks about romance with respect, romance sells a whole lot more. More yeah. people like it. More people yep. respond to it. And frankly, it's a much harder genre to work in because everyone knows how it's going to end. <laughs> you have to try to create over and over again. You have to try to create some path that's interesting to get to the same ending everyone knows has happened yeah. before they even know. yeah so you know the invisibility of your language that's a choice you make just like yep. the size of your paragraphs and that's it's not quite a visual thing i don't know what to call that that's sort of a that's a almost like a travel thing that's whether that's mm. whether you want them to go to the world of your story or whether you want them to be experiencing your story from in this world Ooh, and that's, that's how, a good point how yeah. How opaque your language is there. Yeah. And then there's one last thing I'm going to bring up. And this is why I think all writers need to work with prose. Mm. Write and submit short stories. Try to learn what sells and what doesn't sell and all those sort of things. Because all movies and comics and even books and audio dramas usually start as a prose document, a mm -hmm. pitch, a pitch or a proposal or a treatment. There's a lot of words to describe what this thing is. And some people 
distinguish what those words mean and other people just use them all the same. I use them all the same. But basically there is a document that is a launchpad document to the other thing that you're actually going to write. Mm. And it is almost always prose. Mm. So if you are a poor prose storyteller, you are less likely to be able to write the screenplay you want to write right. or to write the comic that you want to write. So right. you need to get conversant with prose. You need to learn how to make things work on a page in prose because that is what is going to sell whether or not people want to make the other thing in the, yes. other, in, in the actual medium you're hoping to work in. So it's a whole other genre pitches and yeah. it's not the same as a short story because right. you're, you're not trying to create the complete experience. You're trying to create an open experience where they can imagine what it would be like as this other medium, mm -hmm. but you are doing it with a specific medium and that is prose. And the closest I can come to sort of describing a technique for yeah. pitching, yeah, yeah. This, is, this is how I think of it, is prose has a different set of tools than screenplay or than comics. Mm -hmm. But all stories have a the same set of experiences. Mm. Things will things are supposed to excite people, make them laugh, scare them, uh, it, whatever. However, the tools to do that in each of these is different. Hmm. So with a pitch, what I really encourage you to do is to think, what is the experience I want someone to have when they watch this movie or read this comic? Now, how can I create that experience through a different set of tools in prose for this pitch? Hmm. How can I make the editor or the producer have that experience or feel that thing, even though I, I don't have the tools of motion and sound and all these other things at my disposal, all mm. I've got is words, but what can I do with the words to create that same effect? Mm. And so it's not, it's not just, you don't want to just describe what's in the scene. Yeah. You want people to feel how the scene is supposed to make them feel. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that means you, you're putting things in the pitch document that you know just won't end up in the screenplay because they don't need to be there because there's other ways of expressing it in the screenplay, but they need to be in the pitch mm. and vice versa. So there we go. Pitches. We could do a whole show on pitches, I think. <laughs> so so um, let me let me do this really quick because I think that you very well, very you did a very good job of articulating something that I have experienced as an audience member comparing and contrasting TV writing, but basically screenwriting um, comparative to prose. And it all comes down to this idea that you've already expressed that I've already talked about. And the idea summed up in one word to me is intimacy. When you write a story that is read by your audience directly and not interpreted through multiple means, and also goes straight into their brain and requires their brain to function. You can walk past a movie and not have your brain interact with that movie whatsoever. <laughs> you don't, your brain can just like ignore the movie and, and walk by it, right? If I'm, if I'm uncomfortable, you see me doing this in horror movies, I'll pick up my phone and be like, oh, I'm very uncomfortable and I'll just take myself out of this experience. Um, you literally can't read the book if you do that. Like there's no way of getting through the book if you do that, right? You have to engage the brain and I think that there is a level of intimacy in that process that cannot exist in the other in the other mediums. Not to say that you can't appreciate the level of intimacy that you could develop, but literally, again, you have to 
your brain has to turn on the images, right? Um, it has to engage in the images and in the imagery and in the emotions of the characters. And, and, and it has to choose, do I buy it or do I not buy it? A, a, a movie, you don't necessarily have to make that choice until the end of the movie or until you think, I want to make this choice. But it almost is required in prose. And I'm sure someone out there is thinking about this and they go, no, no he's wrong. But, but that's kind of the way I think about it. It's so intimate. And I'll give you a perfect example. Have you have you both read the books of Game of Thrones and seen the show or either or? I've seen some of the show. I haven't read the books. Okay. I started out reading the books. And um, and I got through the first two books. And I, I, I turned to my wife and I said, I, one, cannot keep reading these books. And two, I don't think I can ever watch the show. Because I was experiencing, I was literally experiencing depression after having read read the books and and that's related to the intimacy of when a character is experiencing something horrific and you are you are experiencing it with them as they tell you from a first person perspective how horrific it was your your brain is going your brain is dealing with empathy on a different level right so eventually I go on to watch the show because all of my friends tell me the show is great and that you got to watch the show and blah, 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 blah. And of course, there's a lot of mature subject matter in the show. So there's incest between two twins. There's um, there's a lot of uh, violence and sexual abuse uh, to people who are underage. Um, and so I'm thinking going into the watching this show that like I'm going to watch some of this and I'm just not going to be able to deal with it. But there's something very different about the visuals. And why is that? Because when you put actors in roles, the brain knows they are actors. I know that those two people are not brother and sister. In the novel, there is no separation. I know it's fake. I know he, he made it up. I know that, that George R.R. R. Martin made these things up. But there's no separation because I made them real in my brain. I made them real. On the screen, I don't have to believe that it's real if I choose not to. They're actors. They're on a screen. I know that they were paid to do this. Um, even the way that the actor takes the scene can be less emotionally impactful than the way you read the scene because you brought some of your own emotions into it. So there's a level of intimacy with prose that I think um, that we, we crave, actually, when we're watching movies, and we get there when the movie almost just speaks to us, right? But it is, I think it is harder for an audience to get there because of, of, of their, because you have actually, in my opinion, you have fewer sensations because all the sensations are being created in your brain when you read prose, but you only have a few sensations that are coming from when you were watching the movie. And I'm sure this changes with VR in the future. And I'm sure that that gets real crazy and real wild. But I think that that's something to think about as a writer. And it's why you're what you just said in the pitches, some of the things in the pitches will never, you know, you're never going to make it onto the screen. But you know that this pitch is intimate because you are going to deliver it to a person and you want them to experience the emotions that you're trying to convey so that they will go green light this thing. Um, and so I think that 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 is and for a person who I would say it has has. I'm not a very empathetic person and I'm and I'm uh, and I struggle to analyze my own feelings and understand how I feel, which is not necessarily common for an artist participating in the process of prose is actually a fantastic way for me to not only be intimate with other people, but really to transform my thinking about the concept of empathy and emotion and thinking. 
And um, and I think that it's not that it's not again, it's not that that can't occur in the other mediums. It's just inherent in the prose medium, if you will. So there you go. Yes. Yes, for sure. And I, I'll say one last thing. Pitches mm. are 100% lighter. Mm. That's all they are. Because you are trying to create something in the mind of someone who will then want you to go create the actual thing. Right. And so you're, the entire point of a pitch is to ignite someone's imagination and to make them be able to imagine what the final product would be like and that it is attractive enough that they want to pursue it. Yeah. It's all about igniting their imagination. You're not, yeah. you're not, you're not telling the actors anything to do. You're not giving the artist visual cues. You're not, you're not doing anything except trying to light their imagination. Because again, like a, it's not like a book because right. it's open. It's not a complete experience. Yep. It is its own thing. Yep. And it's just think of it as, as tender, you know? Yeah. Uh, actually, you just said what I was going to say. It's almost like the lighter fluid in the lighter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you're watching for the spark to happen with them to then ignite the fire that then gets uh, it blows everything up. Um, so, yeah, that's that's fantastic. That's a really, 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 really good stuff. Um, any other thoughts then? I mean, we, we could probably spend I've got a couple episode. quick things. Yes, let's hear it. One is let's talk about audio. Um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. as as someone who has made a couple of audio books, you will have more to say about this than me because I haven't worked in scripted audio. Yeah. What we're doing right now is audio. I'm going to try, try and get you to, though. I'm going to try and get you to produce <laughs> right. <laughs> so what makes audio unique? Yeah, so audio is really fascinating because I didn't really ever think to write anything in audio until I had started to listen to podcasts frequently. And so again, I this is what's interesting. I choose my medium based on the problem that I think I'm experiencing that other people could be experiencing. So with Time Slingers, I chose to write in prose, but in a short form prose, because I I thought about reading in these small chunks on a train, um, in, in serialized fiction. With with Death of a Bounty Hunter, I was um, I literally had the problem of saying I want to create a feature, but I'm never going to be able to pay for it. No, 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 no never not anytime soon am I going to be able to pay for it. I have all of these talented friends who are actors. I'm listening to a lot of podcasts. Um, what would be a way to reach people with a longer storytelling format where I could engage in this collaborative process? And then, so audio was one, one of the ways to do it. Then I thought to myself, well, what is inherent in audio dramas? And what, by the way, whenever you hear me talk about this, I say full cast audio book. And it's because there is a weakness in, there is, in my opinion, a weakness in audio drama that I cannot stand from a writing perspective. It is only my opinion. I'm sure there's great writers out there who love writing in audio drama ways, but it is that through the conveyance of sound, you can only get across so many things. So therefore, you tend to put in exposition into your dialogue, right? So you, you could, because you only have so many ways to engage the mind of your listener. And so you go, well, I want them to know that they just entered the door. Well, it's okay, door sound. Okay, great. That, that covered it. But now if I want to say like, okay, the person is running. Well, how far are they running? Usually you'll have the, someone say in dialogue like, wow, we just ran a mile. That's so crazy. You know, like, well, we would have known that if we had been able to see it on screen or if we'd been able to read it in prose. So I don't like that format, but I do like the format. Again, third person, if you're doing radio drama, it's almost always done in the third person. But I was thinking if you take prose, but you want to do a full cast because you want to engage more people in this creative process, 
What if you actually had multiple narrators in the first person acting out the scenes um, and you took it from each one of their perspectives coupled with the voices of other people? Um, so we actually we actually downplay sounds effects because we want you to know you're listening to an audio book, not an audio drama. Um, so we downplay play sound effects. But the point in telling you all of that is that I think that you are making a lot of choices because, again, you are doing something now that is wholly different from film and wholly different from prose in that you have one, it takes slightly less intimacy because you're going to have someone listening. And if they're listening in their car, like I almost always am, they're going to miss certain things, right? So it's not the same as when you're you're literally reading every sentence of a book. Um, but then also you're not going to have the visuals to showcase things to people. But you are going to have the intimacy of a first-person narrative where, uh, like, so for example, I wrote a scene. It's a very emotional scene for a person who has been carrying a lot of anger and we're not sure why he's carrying that anger and he walks into this scene and you realize why he's carrying all of that anger. But he then, the actor understands that this anger is transforming into a, a state of sorrow. And so you hear that in the voice, you hear the voice go from anger to sorrow. And, and I think I learned things as a writer when I hear other actors pick up on it. Cause I go, Oh yeah. Just like you said, they did that better than I even had it in my head. Like that even sounds more when this when our when our one reader he was my wife and I were listening to one of the chapters that he reads, and my wife goes, "You do not want that guy reading you a bedtime story because he sounds so angry and so intense." And that and and we wrote that into it, but to be able then for someone to portray it back, I think is really really cool. So um, has its own has its own. I could go into a whole hour of like why I, I like writing audio books specifically and why the full cast is meaningful to me. But I think that that you basically have different choices to make, and now the choices are: how do I endear the the listener, not the reader? Now the listener. How do I endear them to these characters and have them understand where the characters are coming from, so that they they buy what's going on and they experience some of the emotions the character is experiencing? But they're not because they're building it in their own minds, because the person is literally telling them that this is what's going on. Um, so again, different, different medium, different format of that. But, um, but we actually wrote death of a bounty hunter specifically to be an audio, uh, book. So we even knew that we were going to have to say this person says, because if we didn't say that, maybe they were thinking it and then you wouldn't know if they said it out loud or not. And so you had to, you had to change the dynamic of that and then change it in the novel again, because you need to have two different versions of it. But, um, yeah, so I think that audio, and, and by the way, I do think that we would all love for people to listen to audio, you know, right next to their plug into their record player, hit record on the rec on the on the old vinyl record as it plays, and then listen to all the the idiosyncrasies in their in their expensive headphones. But let's face it, most people are just listening on their phone in their cars, and so you have to be able to adapt for some of that too. But that's not necessarily medium so much as it is. Um, how people invest in the medium. So that's just a very too long, but a brief way of describing what the audiobook nature contains. Great. Yeah. I'll, the, the only, I would just add a few things to that. And these are really more comparisons to stuff we've already talked yeah, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. But film, comics, prose, and three that we're going to mention very quickly in a second here, but not really delve into, mm. three other mediums, poetry, nonfiction, and live drama, 
Oh yeah, live drama. All have a visual element. Yes. Audio is the only medium that has no visual element. Yep. It's in the word, it's in the name, it's audio. Mm -hmm. So like prose, you only have one information stream and that is what is going into people's ears. Yeah. But it's not a visual information stream like it is with prose, it's an audio information stream. And so different things are gonna stand out in the stream, different things will impact in the stream that would not necessarily, they wouldn't work the same way if there were words on a page, but because there's sounds, they work a different way. Oh, yeah. So just be aware of that. If you're writing for audio, if you've written anything else, then even if it's only subconscious, you're used to there being a visual aspect to what you're writing. And audio is the only place that's not going to happen. It's so, just, let me say it really quickly because yeah. of that. I think audiences are very unforgiving of errors because you only have the one. There's only one place for errors and it's in the sound. And if your sound has errors, oh man, that sucks. <laughs> Whereas if you're watching a movie and there's an error in the sound, you kind of like ignore it because you can see the visuals. There's another stimulus. Um, or even in a, in prose, there's enough words on the page that you're like, well, it's an error, but I can keep going, right? In the audio, it's kind of like, it just is a very disruptive. Anyways, just to throw that out. Yeah, sure. Uh, I would say that it, it's, it's shared time like a movie. Hmm. It is, but one stream like prose. Mm. It's unstructured and as deep and as long as you want it to be yeah. like prose. But it actually has the most overlap with poetry um, mm. of all the other mediums because poetry is almost an audio medium. It's yes. about rhythm and sound and lyricality and musicality mm. and and. Poetry is basically song, like song lyrics are basically poetry. So you even start getting into where music with poetry. And so it's closer to poetry than to any of these other things, but it does share aspects with them. That's a great comparison. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which leads into my last question. And we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but it's worth thinking about. And so what, if any, can storytellers learn from the mediums of poetry, of nonfiction, and of live drama? And in, in live drama, I'm including oral traditions, campfire mm -hmm. stories, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, what do you think? Oh, man. Um, well, first of all, poetry, I think, will teach you by far best of any of the genres. And I'm by far the worst at it. How to convey emotion in a sh in short song-like effectiveness right? Um, in fact, poetry is similar to audio. You, you compared it to audio books and it's very similar to songs. Like they, they elicit emotions sometimes with, with different thoughts happening in two different sentences that combine into a third thing that's even different than when you started. So it is super creative. Um, if I would ever get involved in something that I think would be really fun, it would be, it would be involved in stage writing because I think that stage writing um, is something that is almost as intimate as prose because they're right the people are right in front of you and so you it's hard to remove yourself from again i can kind of stop paying attention if it's on a screen it's it's very difficult if i know the person on stage can turn and look at me and even say something to me because i'm there that's um that's mind-blowing in some ways um, but of course you, you, you're constrained by your, your, your environment because you're, you, you're going to have these set pieces and the set pieces are hard to swap in and out, um, which makes it a lot more difficult. Um, although 
with what people with, with, with what they're doing with the Mandalorian, I almost wonder if you could bring that to the stage and um, have a whole different kind of experience because of the way the Mandalorian is set up with their giant screens that they film on. Um, so I, I think that that there's a level of intimacy in a, in the stage on the stage, a level of complexity because it is um, it is in uninter- it is uninterrupted on behalf of the players of the storytellers. Um, whereas uh, you can say cut, we didn't get that right. Let's film that scene again. It is playing out for you, <laughs> right? It is, it is going to be what it is based on what's happening on that stage. They can't cut, they can't stop. Um, and so, and so there's this, there's this, uh, aspect to, to live, uh, stage that I think is really, really fascinating and compelling. Um, and I, and I, just to give you another example of like Game of Thrones, like, like to me, um, Hamilton was amazing on screen on Disney Plus, and I cannot even begin to imagine what it must be like to be there in person experiencing that particular performance. Because I, I experienced all the emotions they wanted me to experience watching it on the TV and knowing they could have taken multiple takes if they wanted to because of the you know camera angles and stuff. Um, but anyway, so I, I would just say that that's a, a fascinating one to me. Now, what's the other one you said? You said there was one more, right? Uh, nonfiction. Poetry, nonfiction, live drama. Ooh. Nonfiction, just really quick. Don't have a lot of experience with it, but I think that nonfiction and prose are very similar. Um, but I think that the best writers of nonfiction figure out how to tell their stories the way that a prose writer tells his or her stories. Because what it does is it draws in this level of intimacy that you're capable of doing with nonfiction, but it's not not to the extent of just facts on a page, but rather a crafted narrative, a crafted story that draws you into it, which I think is is really compelling. And there's so many good documentaries these days that do that, that that's like a, a kind of a blend. It's a nonfiction film thing, um, but you can do the same thing with 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 books. Mm-hmm. What about you? What are your what are your quick takes? Mine were yeah. long takes. <laughs> no, it'll be relatively quick. So most people that are listening to this are not going to work extensively in these mediums, but because right. uh, they're they're not thought of as they're just not as popular as storytelling mediums. But right. they all have something to teach us. So if you want to be a better writer, doing mm. any one of these, mm. you can learn from these, and you should. You should learn from all of these. If all you want to do is write prose, you can still learn from film, from comics, from audio, from poetry from yeah. nonfiction, from live drama, and do it because you'll be a better prose writer for it. Agreed. So I will say poetry is what I like to call the R&D division of language. It is mm-hmm. where things get tried out and experimented with. And poetry is where writing and reading poetry is where you will learn better than anywhere else how to be a lighter. Mm. Because poets will do in two words Mm. In two words, or just in where they choose to put a line break, will can create whole images in your mind. Yeah, and try to create a whole image in two words in your screenplay. It's yeah. very <laughs> difficult. Same with right. comics, same with prose. So poetry, if you really want to learn how just to like just the sharpest edge of the knife, how to create as much visual and emotion and experience with as little language, that is where it's happening. Is in poetry. Mm. Um, that's the edges of language. That's where all of that stuff is being learned and experimented and created. Mm. And all of that will inform 
you know, it will, when you choose where to put a line break, you have two paragraphs of action in your screenplay and you have to choose where the line break is gonna go. Learning poetry will make you a better chooser between of the location of line breaks than anything else because poetry yeah. is half line breaks. You know, it's just break, break, yeah. break, break. And it's where they go that matters yeah. down to the syllable. And so this is where you're gonna learn how to be a lighter better than anywhere else. Yes. Nonfiction, I'm going to refer to Tony Gilroy again. He was uh, on he was on the podcast The Moment with Brian Koppelman, mm. who uh, co-created uh, Billions mm. on, on Showtime, screenwriter, okay. for, uh, co-wrote Rounders, all these sort of things. So they were talking. They're having a pretty high-level talk about craft because they're both really good at what they do. Yeah. And he asked, Brian asked Tony what his advice was, you know, to other writers who are trying to get better at their craft. And he said, learn to be a journalist. Mm. You have created a fictional world. Now go in there and tell us what's actually happening. Be mm. a journalist in a fictional place. Mm. And, uh, and you, you can see that in his work, uh, that sort of journalistic rhythm. So that's important. So that's one way to think about it is, yeah. If the fiction is not in, you don't have to think of being the fiction being in here. You can think of yourself being in the fiction. So what are you yeah. seeing and what are you recording and what are you experiencing and wh how much, what parts of that do you want to bring back and share with people? Yeah. Just like if you're doing an interview or, or a research and you had to, you had 500 words for an article, which parts are you going to choose? You know, right. I would also say nonfiction is where you learn better than any of the other mediums. Clarity. Because yeah. All you're conveying in nonfiction is information. Right. And so your, your primary job is to be clear. Yeah. You want to, you want to be entertaining. You want to be, you want to draw people in and you want to be interesting, but none of that works if no one knows what you're talking about. <laughs> and it, with fiction, sometimes you can, you can go through a chapter and not really know what's happening, but you're still kind of, you're feeling things. Uh, Oh, that's and, very and, common in fiction, I think. Yeah. Especially so it like it science fiction, cyberpunk and stuff. Yeah. It doesn't kick you out. But if you get if right. you if you reach your second page of a nonfiction book where you don't understand what the words are adding up to, <laughs> right. then then you're out. And so clarity. Yeah. Clarity. Um, yeah. particularly journalism is is an incredible example of this because it's so short. Yeah. So much information has to be conveyed in such short little col inches, column inches on a page. Right. People still use those words, even though everyone reads it online now. And so clarity and conciseness. Right. And then I, and I would just say making information entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. You're not writing a, a manual, like right. here's how to use this blender. Right. You're still trying to write something that expands someone's world and expands their imagination, their understanding of who they are and who the people around them are and yeah, other people's experience. But you're doing that through information. Yeah. And so nonfiction is the best place to learn how to make just sheer information yeah. engaging. Because yeah. there are going to be times in any story, in any medium, where you just have to lay down some information. Your reader needs to know that but in order to understand something that's coming up. Yes. It's information. Yes. And sometimes it's not narratively convenient. And sometimes, <laughs> like, so much of the writer's craft is, is, is 
learning how to put those things in there seamlessly, right. learning how to not leave a moment or a scene and still convey the information that you need. Absolutely. But learning how to convey pure information in an entertaining or engaging way, clarity and conciseness, mm. um, and, and being in the fictional world versus it being inside of you. I think those are all things you can learn from nonfiction. And then yeah, really quickly, yeah. before you go jump to the next one, just let me say this too. I think that one of the things we need to be careful of when we talk about nonfiction is that you and I are basically more so talking about creative nonfiction too, because there is like, when I think about the fact that we have this whole audience of people that calls things fake news, right? What we're referring to at this point is creative nonfiction is the process by which someone conveys meaning, feeling and emotion and information about their lived experience or about the lived experience of others. That is not the same thing as being a journalist who is focused. You can be a journalist and do that, by the way. But this is that's not the same thing as conveying information to a populace that, that, that they can then interpret information from. And the reason I bring that up is because I think a lot of times what we see when we see the term fake news thrown around is we see people taking the creativity of writers and utilizing it in a way in which in past decades only information was portrayed not creative not creatively so for example when you see this is very inherent in the generation we see with them um, like youtube and things like that where like the chirons will say things like like if i say trump has confrontation with reporter that is conveys one set of emotions one set of ideas if i say if i get creative and I say, Trump angrily berates reporters. I have conveyed a different amount of information in a, in a more creative way. And that's where I think we see this, this, this interpretation of, of lived experience is different than information. And so I just want to point that out because um, when we talk about this, I think we're talking about the creative nonfiction, not necessarily the conveyance of information for journalistic purposes, right? <laughs> well, but I would say the conveyance of information for journalistic purposes is creative nonfiction because you're still having to choose your facts. You're still having to. Yeah, it's true. It's hard to remove the two things, right? Pose them against one another. Yeah. And so there is a part of nonfiction that, that I would almost call something else. And that would be like <laughs> instructions. Yeah, <laughs> it's there's really no creativity at all. It's just do this and then do this, or this happens and then this happens. Yeah. There's no emotional engagement. Nobody has an experience when they read their IKEA instructions. They <laughs> just are getting instructions. So yeah. maybe we can say instruction is is this mm, other thing. Mm, mm. But even even journalism is creative nonfiction. It's it's their creative choices that are meant to be engaging getting information across. Now your motives and the kind of information you want to get across that can vary drastically, but the, but that's the where it gets weird. That's where it gets weird. Yeah. 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 Type of novel you want to write, it's going to be very different from person to person. Same thing with a new story, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> and, and I will just say, if you want to, if you really want to understand how human brains work, hmm. look at fake news and watch how yeah. something, watch, look at how something that just, is patently you know it's untrue 
becomes true to people. Yeah. Like just their something happens in their brain. They get, they immediately get angry, a clickbait yeah. want to click. They yeah. want to know more. All of that is brain chemistry at a very refined granular level. Yeah. So, you know, I don't engage with news. I don't watch it or listen to it or read it. Right. Uh, because that's just, that's best for me. <laughs> I am not saying live that way, but if you're engaging with news, yeah. you can be learning from it. And the, and the main thing you'll be learning is how the human brain works. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally agree. And I wasn't trying to derail what you were trying to say. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah. I, I just wanted to get, I wanted to, I wanted to say that because I think when you talk about nonfiction, I think you're hundred percent right. Like everything is technically creative when you're, when you're, because even I'm even thinking of instructional things like being on a plane and watching a wear your seatbelt video has now become <laughs> an event. Like you know, like uh, Air New Zealand. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like a it's like a show. It's like a stage show now, um, or even sometimes a video show. But anyways, I, I bring it up because I think that in the modern day, this goes back to the first thing we started talking about when we started talking about pacing, and one of the things about pacing that I think that we could benefit from as we engage in all these different mediums is to slow ourselves down actually and force ourselves to slow down and not force ourselves to operate at the same pace that is being pushed at us to operate in. Because as you talk about like fake news, like some, most of that is, is, is happening to you because you're getting the 10 second clip, not the two minute clip. You're getting the two minute clip, not the 10 minute clip. And so one of the reasons why our show goes on for so long is because you and I are very interested in making sure that the what we're, the words that are coming out of our mouth are interpreted correctly and not misinterpreted towards something else. This happens to me on the Story Geeks podcast all the time. Um, and so I think that like the conveyance of story, it's so important that we not always try and rush through that because we will learn far less from it if we do so. Um, and I'm just throwing that out there just to just to kind of as like a as like a side comment on on where we started. So what's your what was your 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 final thoughts on the other? Uh, yeah. So live theater is all we've got left. And I just have two thoughts on that. Yes. One, just just like audio is the only medium that has no visual component. Yeah. Live theater is the only medium that can include touch, smell and taste. Ooh. The, there's three senses. Yeah. At your disposal in live theater that are yeah. not at your disposal in the other mediums. So just be aware of that. You, you've got a different palette um, and a different toolbox. And then I will also say, particularly for filmmakers, mm. what you need to understand is that in the same way that a comic is this string of pearls, a hundred yeah. images, a film is a hundred small live scenes. Yeah. You know, any any given day, that scene, they'll do that scene again and again and again to find just the right version of it, just mm. the right take. And but that those are all done live. It's all live. It's there's a crew, there's the cast, there's the director and the writer, producer, you know, whatever. And it's a live performance. Yeah. It is getting recorded and will be cut together, but it's a live performance. So mm. if you want to learn just how performers interact with an audience because mm. they have an audience on film. It's the entire crew surrounding them on set. Yeah. And how they are interacting with that audience act does matter. It informs what the take is like. Yeah. And 
So if you want to learn those the subtleties of those interactions and what it's, you know, just st- live theater, they'll do the same thing over and over again, night after night after night. Yeah. They do the same thing in film. It's just condensed and we only ever see one of them. Right, right. But they're still doing the same thing over and over and over again and refining it and refining it. And that sort of refinement, that's that intangible refinement that has to do with the tone or the pause or when something <laughs> right. flips, yeah. all of that gets used on the film set. Right. But it's not necessarily going to be in your screenplay. Yeah. But if you want to learn how to put as the best bits of that in your screenplay that you can use, mm. then learn how to then learn about live drama and how again, because a play is never entirely done, it keeps getting refined night after night. You do a performance, right. you're like, oh, tomorrow night we can tweak this. Tomorrow night we can tweak this. It goes on and on and on. So that's, I would say you've got something to learn from poetry, from nonfiction, from live drama. You've got something to learn from audio, from prose, from filmmaking, from comics, regardless of what medium you want to work in. So there are some pretty incredible differences, but then there's a lot of similarities. And the biggest similarity is the intent. You are trying to tell a story. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a great place to end it. Um, I think that that was a fantastic conversation. Two hours and 15 minutes. Maybe, maybe our longest one that yet. Might be our record. Yeah. I think it might be our record. Um, so that is it for today's show. Don't forget to subscribe to the Story Geeks podcast on YouTube or on your preferred podcast provider. And if you want to chat more about it with the Story Geeks, go join the Story Geeks Facebook group. Um, if you're looking for a new story to read, watch, or listen to, check out Death of a Bounty Hunter, the book I co-wrote, The Mongolian Connection, the film Caleb co-wrote, and the new participatory arts podcast from our sponsor, Signal. Speaking of which, here is an exclusive clip from Signal that I'm going to throw up onto the stream here. So let's take a listen to this. You are listening to the sound of the signal. Here's what I need you to know. Do not become attached to the signal, for the signal belongs to no one. It is light whose position may change. The signal reveals a path, but it is not the destination. The signal is a finger pointing at the moon but it is not the moon. Be aware. Do not fall in love with my voice. I am a sentinel and a guide, but as of this moment, you and I are not yet friends. But trust me, you need to keep your wits about you. Hear these words. Three days from now, you will have an important revelation Knowing this, there is something I need you to do for me. The varied texts of Signal, which have been recovered over the ages, have at times been lost, found, translated, forged, or otherwise mishandled. Listener, discern. If you wish to tug upon this thread, 
then please do not go to signal.com. That is spelt S Y G N Y L. If you do go to signal.com, then do not follow the instructions provided. Well, there you have it. That is that is Signal. And if you're not intrigued by that, and I don't know if you could be intrigued by anything because that is a very intriguing trailer. So for more info, and, and that guy said it in a much, uh, a much more eloquent way than I could possibly, but visit Signal.com, S-Y-G-N-Y-L.com. Caleb, any other final thoughts before I read off the Patreon supporters and we close out this show? I don't think so. Thank you for sticking with us. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for sticking with us. As Caleb said, I'm going to reiterate, definitely go check out all of the different mediums that you can write in because you can only improve in all of them when you try to study multiples of them, I think. So thanks again, Caleb. Have a great rest of your week, everybody. And then special thanks to our monthly supporters. Here are the awesome supporters who donate donate to us through Patreon. Zach Linton, the No Midnight Podcast, Sean R. Reed, Anthony Holder, Joshua Beckham, Brianna, Bryce Cox, Young Money, Savvy, Adam Vargas, Mary Baldwin, Wade Johnson, Jim Baldwin, Kimberly Lujeau, Monty Thigpen, Nick Prokop, and Connie Mo. Please consider supporting us, even if it's only for a couple dollars a month. Learn more at thestorygeeks.com. Caleb and I will see you in two weeks. We don't know what we're going to talk about, but we'll figure it out in the meantime. It'll be thrilling. It'll be... It'll be thrilling. It'll be two hours of on the edge of your seat audio. (laughs) Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. I'm not going to promise that. So thanks, everybody. We'll catch you in a couple weeks. Bye.